I can still see her standing naked in the freezing cold. Her beautiful black hair was gone. Dad shaved her head. I can still see her waving to me as they marched her off with the others to the showers. The showers with no water. Perhaps if somebody had given us a place to hide. Don't you see, Stanley? They have to stay. Or else we haven't lined a thing. Welcome to episode 18 of Film 89 Podcast. As usual, I'm Sky and I'm the editor of Film89.co.uk and with me this episode, to my left, is my writing partner in crime, my good buddy, Mr Neil Gaskin. Hey Podcast, good to be back. For this episode, what we're going to do is, uh, usually, um, you may have picked up by now, we've got various formats of, of the podcast. Sometimes we do an audio commentary. Other times we've got, um, you know, when we review a new film, we'll, we'll have a pretty much segmented structure where we'll talk about the new film, then we'll have a favourite three section, and then we'll have some listener questions. And then the third type we've got is our retrospectives, where we just basically pick a film or, or, or a topic, something usually, you know, you know, a classic film or, or series of films, and we'll just talk about them for the entirety of the episode. This week what we're going to do is we're going to mix it up a little. We're going to mix our regular format with our retrospective format. And joining us tonight um, is a very special guest. We've been very lucky now. Three episodes on the bounce. We've had members of the Wrong Real community. Uh, episode 16, we had Martin Kessler for our Predator episode. Uh, episode 17, we were joined by James Hancock, the, you know, the man who created Wrong Real and kind of brought all of us cinephiles together. And this week, joining us from sunny New York, he's the man who is one half of the incredibly culturally significant I Don't Get It podcast. <laughs> <laughs> he is uh, a bon vivant, uh, sometimes curmudgeonly cinephile. He is a very valued member of the inner circle of the wrong real community. Um, just, you know, a dapper gent and a man about town, and more importantly, creator of what I like to call the thinking man's grumpy skeletal. <laughs> that, that, would, <laughs> that would be Twitter and Facebook's Daily Cobra Commander. It gives me an, the utmost pleasure to finally welcome to Film 89, Mr. Bill Scurry. Bill? Welcome to Film 89. Uh, it's such a pleasure to be here. This is one of my favorite shows. And uh, hey, look, even if James and Martin were ahead of the list, I'll I'll take uh, third billing from either of those two guys because they're such fine guys. I, I think we kept the best to last, Bill, to be honest. <laughs> okay, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll settle for that one too. I'm all right with that. It's good to finally speak to you, Bill. i got to be honest. Uh, me and you frequently sort of uh, exchange uh, jabs on Twitter, but I don't think we've really spoke to each other man to man, man to man, have we? 
No, that's true. Um, yeah, we have a nice thing going. That's the nice thing about uh, uh, it closes the distance of an entire ocean. The fact that we're able to just. I mean, it, it kind of look. It, it feels like you guys are right down like a couple of cubicles away from me. Like we're all in the wrong real office. Like we're just going to bump into each other at the coffee pot. That stuff is pretty cool. It happens daily around here. I'm glad. You, I'm glad you established it was an office cubicle because for a second I thought we were in toilet cubicles, and that was just going to be weird. <laughs> I have a wide stance, like a few uh, closeted American senators. You don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, Bill. You say about the fact that yeah, you, we we do all kind of like feel like we're just down the street. But you know, on your podcast, I don't get it. You're always sort of referring to the you know the impending apocalypse. And if it does come, and you know we we sort of lose social media and and the ability to communicate, we're not going to be able to do this anymore. So fingers crossed, it won't come. Uh, yeah, right. I mean, it, the the literal apocalypse, and then there's like the. Uh, you know the Taylor Swift apocalypse. Those those are two different things. We at least try to make a, a distinction between what would be considered a, a pop culture annihilation and the actual severing of the supply chain. Uh, well, one's a little more heady than the other. I will find you anyway, Bill. You just stay you just stay secure until I get there. Back. Stay alive. I will find you. <laughs> You're my internet BFF. You are so. Uh... <laughs> I'll, I'll come for you, mate. Okay, and before, uh, if you want to carry pulling yourself off, guys, you can do that later. But, Bill, just for our listeners who um, maybe you know don't know who you are and what you do, and and you know your your high position amongst uh, our film Twitter friends, just um, give us a couple of paragraphs about yourself. Sure. Okay. Well, I am, uh, as you guys refer to me, a curmudgeonly uh, old man at this point. I do I do the podcast, like you say, called uh, I Don't Get It. Um, that's just one of a few hats I wear. What do I do? I have been a filmmaker. I am currently cutting together an essay series. It's kind of a large project I've been working on for like the last four or five months. Uh, do a lot of podcasting, a lot of movie viewing, some writing here and there. You know, I've submitted a few pieces to the site, which I'm very happy about. I'm overdue for a, a, a third one of those. Generally, I'm I'm just trying to uh, anesthetize myself with plenty of uh, Kentucky bourbon through the Donald Trump years, and so I think of that as a, a full time job in New York. Yeah, and you know the way you know we became uh, aware of you, Bill, was on Wrong Reel. I, I sort of dipped into Wrong Reel in, in, in sort of about I think the high hundred and seventies, which you know, given Wrong Reel's output is you know one hundred and seventy episodes. I, I start listening to them, and I think now they're on about you know four hundred and thirty. Yeah, yeah, just about yeah, thereabouts. How long have you actually been, um, you know, part of the Wrong Reel crew? I did. Uh, I started listening to uh, James's show. I would say uh, I think late. Third quarter, um, 2016, and you know he was hanging out at Kevin Marr. Kevin, everyone, if you don't know Kevin Marr, he's just one of these Twitter clearinghouse guys too. He's a big pop culture fanatic, and he runs a show here in New York called Kevin Geeks Out. And so it's a natural place for everyone to meet each other. So James was at the bar after that show. That's where I met him. Also, a guy named Marcus Penn, who I'm sure you're familiar with, was there too. Regular habituates, John Cribs, the Pink Smoke guys were there. And so uh, it just sort of became a natural fit of Jamie asking me if I wanted to be on the show. And so I think it was uh, November or October 2016 I did my first episode with him. We did Mel Brooks. And I think it's probably been 10 or 11 episodes since then at the very least. Yeah, I think, you know, it was around about that time I got into into Wrong Reel myself. I got the, the first one I can recall listening to may have been um, his Conan the Barbarian one. Yeah, that's kind of when I got into it. It was literally within a month. We'd struck up a conversation um, on on Twitter. They they were they were talking about 
uh, American Werewolf in London. And it was a little uh, reference that I think um, only Brits would have got. So I messaged James telling him about you know this this reference to um, see you next Tuesday, which. Uh, is is a little like sort of it's a, it's a little sort of motif that runs throughout John Landis's film. So right. quite appropriately, you know, my, my relationship with Wrong Real kind of started, uh, you know, when we were talking about the sea bomb. But yeah, then you know, I I was on the show then in in December, I think twenty sixteen, and it's sort of gone from there. And I think certainly between Steve and I now, we've done I think about eight or nine episodes together with with James. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Neil, when are you going to get on? I know that uh, you're ready for this. You're ready for the spot. Oh, Joe, Sky actually compared him to uh, fighting Muhammad Ali. Perhaps I'm peak Mike Tyson, you know, I'd say. Yeah. Uh, and at the moment, I'm kind of like an out-of-shape Tyson Fury. So, I don't know. I'm, I'm trying to build up the coverage to have a go with it. You just got to bite that bastard deer off. That'll, that'll, settle the, that'll <laughs> make the scales pretty balanced right there. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah. There's, there's just this, this thing of you know, James is his knowledge of film, his his breadth of knowledge of film. You know, he does know everything about everything, but he knows a little bit about everything. Yeah, and, that's true. You know, and the stuff he does know, he just knows inside and out. Is the, the way I see. I think I, I said before, if if you could measure someone's film knowledge on on a scale of a hundred. If James's was a hundred, I think mine would be around about thirty-five, forty. You know, he just knows everything about you know, you know. I I've discovered directors as a result of episodes of Wrong Wheel, which I'd, I'd barely heard of and, and hadn't certainly hadn't been familiar with any of their films. But anyway, and James is quite open and honest that sometimes he you know he's making new discoveries. But you know the, the guy just eats and breathes film, and and you know I, I only wish I had the, the time to do the same. Yeah, plus. Well, I, I- Sorry, I'm sorry, go on. I was going to say, on. plus I was going to pitch Roadhouse, and uh, you've beat me to the punch now. <laughs> uh, you know, he actually appointed me. I I wouldn't have picked Roadhouse naturally. I have like a, a knock list of movies, but I, I couldn't say no. It's almost like, you know, when he asked me to kiss the ring, I'll pretty much talk about whatever he wants me to talk about. You didn't just kiss the ring, you ripped the throat out. i got to be honest. I ripped it. <laughs> 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 yeah, very apt. But I was going to say, though, um, so on social media, I can tell by your guys' social comportment, you have full lives. You have families. You have offspring. You have people and and, and obligations and things that make your life have meaning. And I can tell you for a fact that, you know, James – I go to his bachelor's apartment. It's a great place. It's like a geodesic dome of just fan culture. You know, it's like that big Epcot Center spaceship Earth thing that he exists inside of. It's this hermetic sphere that he just mainlines culture. So he reads comic books and he watches Westworld and he does his YouTube videos and he, you know, podcasts inside there and and, and watches movies and goes to midnight screenings and then comes back and does YouTube videos at three in the morning about his his midnight screenings. I mean, he quite literally is connected to all this stuff in just such a, a, a weird whole way that doesn't leave room for anything else. It's really impressive. At the same time, I don't think too many of us are wired to go that hard, even if it's something we love that much. Oh, hell no. And I think with, um, you know, with Film 89 and, you know, now the podcast, Neil and Richie Roberts and, and Jim Cottle, who's, um, who sometimes comes on the podcast, you know, we all met through work. We, we all do the same job. It's an extremely stressful job. It's nothing to do with film or television. But we all sort of, you know, found each other, found our, like, love of film. And this whole thing of Film 89, as, I, as I've said before, when someone asked, you know, where the name comes from, this was just like you know Neil and I talking maybe about six, seven, eight years ago about if we ever started a website, you know what would we call it? And even back then, I don't think the idea of a podcast was something we'd ever thought of because we weren't actually consciously aware of, of how popular podcasts would come back then. My, yeah. Fir- my yeah. I didn't actually 
you used to talk about podcasts years ago and I didn't know what a podcast was. It was yeah. only when you did, because I'm a bit of a technophobe, and yeah. uh, I only found out what a podcast was when you did the first Wrong Wheel. Yeah, and I think, you know, and until I got into Wrong Wheel, the only podcast I'd ever listened to was, I think, a few episodes of Ricky Gervais's podcast when he was doing that. But yeah, right, you know, you know, right, the, yeah. The, the whole podcast thing has exploded and it's just... It's basically a free form of entertainment for people. Certain podcasts, when they reach a certain size, will attract you know sponsorship and things like that. But ultimately, you know, unless you subscribe to certain podcasts that ask you to contribute to their Patreon to get additional content, it's a free product, a free service. It's free entertainment, and for me, it's sort of overtaken things like my listening to music. I listen to hardly any music anymore because. You know, most of my time, you know, when I got my earphones in, if I'm going back and forth to work, you know, if I'm if I'm doing a menial, you know, bit of housework or whatever, I, I'm listening to podcasts, and it's just, you know, there's there so many out there, you know, of varying degrees of quality, but you know, if you can find a nice collection of podcasts to fit your needs, and not all, all of them have to be like film related, like obviously with yours, with um, I don't get it, I think I was quite late to the to the game with that one, but I've binge listened to most of your episodes, and you know, again, it's just it's still within the similar ballpark of popular culture, but you know, there, there are loads of different podcasts out there, and you know, it, it's like we are just a little fish in a in a in a big ocean. But but at the same time, though, I feel like everyone who is hooked oh, those particular fish who get hooked on the same line are exactly the venn diagram it's a perfect circle of the people you want listening i mean and and i feel like whereas most of twitter and a lot of social media and the internet turns out to be this big disgusting vile sewer full of people who are terrible terrible human beings the scene that's been curated with movie twitter is just so friendly and actually well informed and everyone it takes good custodial care of each other and it seems like people actually give a shit about other people's feelings so i think that's another strange quirk of our little corner of social media podcasting twitter that sort of thing is that it's actually a really decent and healthy environment for us yeah it is and as we you know as we mentioned on the last episode the cleopatra one with james is there is a sort of not to be gender specific but there's a gentlemanly conduct amongst us all um, you know, not that we're all men. You know, there's yeah. several you know women as part of the group as well. But we're all very much respective of each other's opinions. We don't always agree, but when we disagree, we do it in such a way that you know, basically, we're like grown-ups, and we, you know, we have a laugh, we have a joke, and you know, we sometimes our sense of humor is pretty messed up. But you know, there's never that. You know, there's never a tension or a, or, or any feeling of bad blood. We. When we're talking publicly outside of the wrong wheel group, you always have these people who who want to attack you for disliking a film, who want to attack you for liking a film, or you, as soon as you have a different opinion with certain people, when you've got this pack mentality, like this ridiculous Marvel comics, DC comics rift, you know this this whole schism that's been caused in the Star Wars fan community by the Last Jedi, this sort of ridiculous well, thing. Well, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, you can you can have a discussion about things in in a grown up, you know, sensible mm-hmm. manner where you put your opinion across in an objective fashion which is what we all try to do when we when we write for the website we always try to be objective if it's a film that we've chosen or been chosen to write about you know we're not always going to like it same as when we're discussing on the podcast but if we put across why we don't like the film in an objective fashion and put our argument across in such a way that people might not necessarily disagree with us they can understand where we're coming from and i think you know that sort of spills over into the way we as this you know this twitter community that is sort of grown up around us all um, sort of interact with each other on a daily basis 
Yeah, and not only that, but the, the the beauty of doing a site like yours, when everybody, you know, whenever if I read one of Steve's pieces or your pieces or Neil's pieces, it's a different context. Like you guys write different than you speak, which is obviously naturally that's how the, the human brain works. However, to go into the depth. Uh, of reading your pieces about film and culture on the site is a great corollary to the podcast experience too. I mean, it, one of the things that I always bump into is feeling humbled, but in a good way by someone who knows more than I do. Because I mean, to me, that's like, it's like a younger brother, older brother, or sibling in this thing. It's like a younger, younger sibling, older sibling relationship with somebody where it's like, I always still feel like I have something to learn. And I mean, to be honest, I'm also a giant dumbass too. So any day, I don't think I'm, I'm, I'm humbled is is preposterous and probably a waste of time. But anytime I meet with somebody and understand, geez, you have a, a, a taste level and a sort of whole experience bracket to pull on as a cineast that I'm just still learning the names of these things that you're an expert on. It, it becomes humbling, but I think in a very healthy way. I think that there is, it's not a rivalry, but it does that it spurs me to either keep reading, keep watching, and keep kind of coming up with my own ideas, trying to make what I have to say more cogent and, and and more complex. Also, you know, it's a component of getting older too. It's just trying to find a better way to say things in life. Yeah, you know, I think for us, it, this whole thing is just a nice outlet. We come away from our, you know, very stressful daily working lives and stuff, and we just, you know, we just get to indulge in something that is completely unrelated from what we do day in and day out. And, you know, it, it's just a common interest we all share. Yeah, I mean, it's more than that. I, I just sort of feel like it is this kind of rigorousness that I didn't even come close to in college, you know, and I, I did fairly well. I was a good student in school, but I kind of feel like this is the sort sort of um, scholarship I should have engaged in. I, <laughs> if someone had pointed to me and said, "Hey, jackass, why don't you study cinema or sort of get into filmmaking or do this earlier rather than later? Maybe fixate on this when you're 19, 20, 21 years old." Uh, I think it made, would have made me a different intellectual creature entirely rather than the, the burnt-out husk uh, filled with Cobra Commander aphorisms that I am today. But then, you know, we would have done it from the standpoint of being younger and we wouldn't have had, and you know, this is going to sound quite presumptuous of, you know, the fact that we're all just a bit more world-weary and wiser and we sort of look at things from that, you know, midlife perspective now. Whereas when we were young and, you know... No, I, I'd agree with Bill on the sort of work ethics side, because at the moment I'm doing several pieces for a, an upcoming sort of series we're doing. I, w I was actually having an internal sort of dialogue with myself the other night saying, I wish I could have applied myself in, yeah. in school yep, yep, like yep, this, yep. you know? Yeah. Because, but I think it's, again, it's something that interests you, isn't it? And that's the, that's the difference. I felt a lot of the time, I was the sort of classic, you know, he could, do, he could do really well if he applied himself, kid, you know? I was the one who always had the, the, <laughs> yeah. what, what we would call the shit sandwich whenever there was a parents' <laughs> evening. But uh, <laughs> I think, the, you know, the flip side to that is, you know, Neil's being quite self-depreciating there, but, you know, we're not going to talk about our jobs and whatever, but there is, from certain people's point of view, it's, it's a remarkable job. He's experienced some incredible things and seen, seen things from, you know, a, a very sort of privileged sort of vantage point. So even though it's completely unrelated to film and television, the, you know the, the sort of line of work you ended up in gave you a degree of life experience, which has now affected the way you look at things, including film and the way you analyze film. Yeah, and that was down to die hard. So yeah, <laughs> so it comes full, <laughs> so it comes full circle. Uh, every, everything we learned about life, we learned from die hard. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, guys, our, our main sort of topic of discussion tonight, we're moving away from uh, film to discuss a mini series from the eighties, one which uh, I'm hoping we're all very fond of. It is the 1983 and then subsequent follow-up in 1984 television mini series created by Kenneth Johnson V. 
Bill, when is the first time you became aware of V, or were you there from the start? Yeah, dude, I was on the ground. So 83, I am eight years old. And um, I feel like, well, TV, first of all, was the fire. That's the hearth. There was nothing bigger than TV, certainly in culture, but also in the household. That was the TV was bigger than movies, even just because there was so damn much of it. And I was the perfect age for it. So when when V came in, it quite literally swallowed up the sky like one of these motherships. It just cast a shadow in a way. And look, I was too young for Roots. I think Roots was what, 77? Yeah, Ro Roots was 77. And yeah, I, I think, you know, like like you, I was there for V from the beginning, albeit a year later, because it actually aired in the UK in '84. Right. Yeah. 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 But I I never caught Roots when it was on TV because I well I would have been barely one I think at the time. Yeah, and so uh, yeah, right. I was too. What the hell? I didn't think my parents watched Roots. Uh, they certainly didn't read the Alex Haley book. How, however, though, the only reason I bring up Roots is because of the uh, all-consuming Unicron-like size of this thing as it approached TV and loomed over the landscape, and that we we don't have an analog today to try to explain to somebody what the size uh, and the shape of a V is today because we don't have them. We're so balkanized in terms of our culture. But I understood it patently that every single person had it on the household and you, it was the first water cooler buzz. I remember in, in uh, third grade the next day in school was that people were saying, holy shit, did you see, uh, you know, did you see V? The, she ate the freaking uh, gerbil right in front of everybody. And, <laughs> And, and that that was as big as news got for us. That became the first buzzworthy thing that we had to to, to deal with. And it was you know it was a huge thing on the economy of the eight year old, and obviously on TV because they didn't make a lot of these and they were big. And it was this gigantic nuclear bomb on TV. It was a huge hit. I mean, it was a big seismic change. So so Bill, given the fact that you you very much got away with words, try and sum up in, in as concise a fashion, you know, a, a basic sort of plot synopsis for V and what it's all about. Well, it's a metaphor, obviously, or an allegory for the uh, fascist takeover of Germany. But, <laughs> and it's not exactly soft-pedaling that either. It's fairly broad. Oh, yeah, it's However, fairly, fairly on the nose, yeah. yeah. It's fairly <laughs> on the nose, yeah. However, uh, <laughs> um, I mean, it's, it's these motherships show up. And believe me, there's so much embedded in this show, both thematically and visually, that has been cribbed by a billion different things that came down the pike. You could say Independence Day ripped off the opening visual of saucers coming to Earth almost wholesale. But, uh, you know, visit these aliens show up. They're humanoid. They promise technology. And a couple of humans get the idea that these aliens have a, you know, they have a stink eye. There's something they're not telling us. And so while the aliens are perpetrating this, we're going to fix you by curing your diseases – a couple of humans actually figure out the secret that there's something rotten in Denmark. And uh, the first miniseries almost comes to a head with the concretizing of the fact that we be, the, a, a lot of humans become aware that they need to be resistant while you're watching your neighbor become uh, collaborators. So you do have one of a, a Vichy situation, which you know really hits the whole World War II German thing on the head. Uh, and so I think the, the the climax of the miniseries, the first miniseries in 1983, was people start defacing the friendliness posters. And it's the old Holocaust survivor who's the first one to do it, which is this thing that says, okay, this is the tenor of the show. Humans can't uh, afford to just sit back and not be suspicious of this thing that seems too good to be true because it most certainly is. So in the second series, 
you know, this is the only criticism I'll give this at all is that Ken Johnson could, did not close the deal in the first series. Like, I wasn't aware of this because it had been so long since I'd seen this. I thought that the first miniseries was a discrete series and the second one was a discrete one, too. I didn't realize it was a, no, quite literally, part one, cliffhanger, part two, re- resolution. Nonetheless. So the second one, it winds up being the insurgent war. It's the silent campaign where it quite literally is a pitch battle down the center between an actual resistance living in the hills conducting a guerrilla war against an occupying army and then the various dramas that are bound up in between and in the end the aliens are pushed off planet earth by a much more ingenious uh, sort of guerrilla campaign by people who are willing to dig down and just sacrifice a little more than the aliens are yeah because i was trying doing the rewatch before this i was trying to think i'm pretty sure in the uk that it was uh shown over hours over, over like five nights right. rather than mm. being a TV movie because I can remember the first time I saw it would have been probably been about the same age as Bill and the first episode didn't, didn't terrify me but I can remember it was the summer holidays and we were up to a little bit later yeah. and I got to watch the first episode I think for the second reason I don't know if I wasn't there but I got to sleep over or something. my dad taped it for me I can remember clearly being sat down watching it on the old VHS in the morning and yeah. being absolutely terrified by a diet in the uh, is a gerbil or a guinea pigs yet I can't remember yeah, which one yeah. but, uh, but I, I'm, <laughs> I'm also pretty sure that the final battle almost sort of came a couple of weeks later well I, yeah now I've neglected to actually look on IMDB because what one of the handy things about that site is what it'll do is it'll, it'll show you release dates specific to a country yeah. now my memory of V is that it, it was one self-contained story in the first miniseries and then I, I sort of had a cloudy or, or, or pretty vague recollection of what the final battle was about. And even though I've, I've probably seen V about five times in total, V and the final battle, but what surprised me is the fact that the story, that the, the whole from start to finish, and I mean like from the very start to the point where they finally pushed the aliens off Earth the, the first time, that is actually spread across both V, the 83 series, and then the final battle in 1984. It is actually, like you say, a two-part story that plays out across two miniseries. Now, I think because I'd later on in life then seen the... You know, this is going to become quite confusing for people who are not familiar with V, but you had a three-and-a-quarter-hour miniseries that aired in May of 1983 in the US. You then had a follow-up four-and-a-half-hour miniseries that aired in the US in 1984. And yep. then in 1985, you had, I think, a 19-part television series... Which we're not really going to talk about that here because you know, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll put our cards on the table now. Um, the, the the subsequent series, the follow up, you know, nineteen episode series, is just takes a, a rapid dip in quality. You know, they, Kenneth Johnson wasn't involved. They were um, it, it was made for a fraction of the budget of the you know the, the first two series, and it's just basically you know, if you want the complete V package before it starts to go downhill. Just stick to V the miniseries and V the final battle. But basically, they are both, you've got three and a quarter and four and a half hour miniseries over which they tell this one story. And as Neil was saying there, I'm pretty sure that given the fact that we had the first miniseries a year later, we had in 1984, by which time the final battle was airing in the US, I'm pretty sure that the first time it was aired in the UK, they actually showed the entire run of V and V the final battle over that summer. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was like the first week was V the miniseries. Yeah. It was five hourly slots. So it would have been 45 minutes with that yeah. breaks. And then, or four perhaps. And then 
two or three weeks later, I can remember... Because my, my dad was sort of like, oh, he loves Star Wars, you'll love this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'll shut him up, put that on. And it was like, well, I think it was about three or four weeks later, it was like, oh, I've got the, the new V, I take the new V for you, because I'd gone back to school by then. You know? Yeah, yeah. And because I'd always been aware of the fact that the original series aired in 1983, I assumed that it was 1983 that I saw it, but clearly yeah. I saw it in 1984, so I probably would have been maybe seven going on going on eight and then i had this sense of time dilation about v because what i remember my memories were visceral of uh, john heard uh richard heard getting his face peeled off and like i thought that that was the main event of the original miniseries i didn't realize that you had to wait a year for that so the time dilation was just that I, i'm thinking well was that may of 83 or may of 84 well i'm thinking of may of 84 but i squished all those things together in my head that a lot of the seminal things the baby john getting his face peeled off on tv all that's stuff happened in the second miniseries entirely and very few, very few of the visuals other than diana eating that damn uh, gerbil guinea pig uh, chinchilla deal oh but that was in the beginning of the first miniseries a year earlier I, I had no idea of that yeah so clearly the story because there's so much setup for the final battle in the first miniseries it was clearly planned as a, as a complete story arc and you know i don't know if it's clear what kenneth johnson's intentions were going forward after the final battle because i think he actually skipped out and, and left during the the production of the final battle he actually left the show halfway through yeah i, I looked online apparently is that he in the uh, late 90s or early 2000s had published i guess what you'd call fan fiction I mean, his own idea i guess he, he put in a novel form his treatment and i just looked that up not too long ago uh, and it answers some questions because, I mean, to jump, jumping around here, there is a uh, MacGuffin at the end of the first miniseries where Juliet sends a transmission out into space, kind of like pinging the V's enemies. And that's just forgotten about. They don't pick that thread up. You could say that it doesn't matter because the vast, you know, using the Fermi paradox, the vastness of space would indicate no one would ever get that message. However, Ken Johnson apparently did have an idea of what he wanted. And given his uh, druthers, the second miniseries, I think, was supposed to feature another alien race. The enemy of my enemy is my is my friend, as, as Mark Singer says. And I think that might have been the biggest... Uh, change was that they would have they, you but maybe it would have been less the fifth column and more the fact that they would have introduced the whole new alien species yeah i was gonna say because um that was going to be my sort of like clever moment for this podcast was gonna, i was going to sort of slate the um i think it was a 2009 yeah 2009 re reboot oh, of it God. and i was gonna say you know why did they introduce that you know the, the other alien race and it, it could have been a twist in the tale that perhaps the visitors were actually the good guys but i think that's what kenneth johnson did in that novelette wasn't it Kind of. Yeah, I mean, yeah. as much as we know, I, I'm not going to read the damn thing, but I... No, I, I, just read, I, just read, I just read the synopsis and that was enough for me. <laughs> but I, know, <laughs> I know there's talk, of, there was talk earlier in the year that I think it's Desi Lee Studios have announced they're going to make that as a movie with Kenneth Johnson on board. Yeah, I, I, we're going to see that like we're going to see a Venom sequel, I'm sure. They're just... We're going to see a Venom sequel, I'm yeah. telling you, after the, All moment, right, so... after the amount of money that pile of shit took. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, we'll see a Venom sequel, but Ken Johnson won't get pound one from these guys to, to do that. <laughs> yeah. I, lo I love the fact it was Desi Lu Studios as well, you know, it was... Uh... <laughs> Which I think it was um, Lucille Ball's original studio, wasn't it? It's been bought out by some Viacom-type agency and has done nothing in the last 20 years. Yeah, it's just it's just a vestigial brand. It's some something <laughs> they keep around for trademark, I'm sure, just so they can keep pumping out uh, Lila Lucy reruns and syndication. <laughs> so, so, V, it was, it was based on an original screenplay by Kenneth Johnson called Storm Warnings, 
which was about a, a sort of homegrown fascist uprising. But I think at the time, no doubt due to the success of Star Wars, which was still even like that point, you know, five or six years on was still huge. It, it was decided that the fascists, fascists, instead of being human, should be aliens. So I think Johnson was initially against this, but later realised it was a, a sort of very clever way to get the show's core message across about this sort of insidious infiltration of our people by a fascist force. And, you know, the whole thing of creating discrimination and feelings of mistrust in order to destabilise us prior to subjugating us and, and, and taking over the planet. Yeah. Uh, let, let me ask you something, because my English friends have always talked about this series called Threads. Is that something that in terms of like a huge cultural shift that has a lot of the same, uh, you know, end of the species uh, metaphors and themes and stuff like that. That seemed to me to always cast this similar V-like thing, but much more a, a sober, you know, a sober production or a sober presentation of those same themes. Did did that shake the earth in the UK the way that V did over here? I think it might have been the same year or the no, year after. Yeah, it, it did. But it, whereas V had a sort of crossover appeal between adults and children because of the sci-fi Angle, things like threads it came at a time where there, there were a lot of um sort of post-apocalyptic um tv programs airing at the time you had things like adaptations of day of the triffids uh, there was a sci-fi show called the tripods which was about an alien invasion and i think you know it was you still had that that cold war paranoia you know the fear of nuclear annihilation was something that was still pretty much sort of in in the in the public consciousness and i i always remember that there were a few of those things i became aware of as much as i didn't see threads there there was a an animated uh, i think it was a short film called where the wind blows when the wind blows yeah. Yeah, yeah which was just a really disturbing tale about a, a family that builds a bomb shelter and you know how they survive you know a, a nuclear detonation and there was another show called uh, there was one about there was there was a rabies epidemic in in um, mainland europe and and i think that there was a, i can't even remember the name of the show but it was about this rabies epidemic coming into britain and it was all completely overblown and nothing like the actual you know what rabies would be like and yeah there was just a proliferation of shows like that and i think v was was the only one of that type that i remember that came from Across the pond, yeah. you know, Nick Meyer, Nick Meyer directed a, a movie or a miniseries in '84 called "The Day After," which was, uh, I think, a Threads type show about the uh, misconstrued nuclear war, and it, it took place in a couple of towns in like Kansas, where these nuclear missile silos had expended their payload, and so it was these people watching where the hell are these missiles going? When's it going to come back to us? And it was another many, you know, multi-night series arc where you're seeing small people just at the whims of this gigantic thing that's so bigger in conception uh, that they could possibly imagine. Yeah, and so obviously, you know, in America at the time, you, you would have a better idea, I suppose, of what the landscape of television was like. I think Kenneth Johnson, he'd done uh, The Incredible Hulk, which I think at the time, it wasn't that airing on NBC along with uh, Wonder Woman, the Linda Carter show? Yeah, and I think the Incredible Hulk may have gone off the air in '82 or '83. Uh, it was it was probably one ended and the other began, something like that. Yeah, you know, there's there's a little bit of crossover with the with the Incredible Hulk there because I I never realised why the character in the comics is Bruce Banner, and then in the TV show he was David Banner. But yeah. being something that Kenneth Johnson had made, he'd actually renamed the character David after his son. His daughter is called Julie. Uh, which is why you've got Julie Parrish and the, the, one of the two main heroes in V. You've blown, Interesting. My, you've blown my mind now, because yeah. I, I always heard the Bruce, <laughs> the Bruce Banner 
was considered to be um, homosexual. Homosexual name. Yeah, in, 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 in this day and age, Bill, you don't know what to say. Let's be honest. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say homosexual. Everyone's got told off for using that word. So yeah, no, it. Um, you know, he'd obviously made the move from the Incredible Hulk, and then, and then he wanted to do this sort of pet project of his. And as soon as they injected that sci-fi angle into it, things sort of snowballed. It then became this, albeit the budget was quite slim in, in, in relation to you know budgets that you get for TV shows these days, like Game of Thrones and, and things like that. My impression always was that you know this was big budget TV. This was, I think the, the way I can best put it, this was the first time I ever became aware of event television. Now whether or not shows like Roots, which aired obviously six years before, were as big at the time. I couldn't tell you because I was too young to, to be aware of such things at the time. But but for me, in 1984, uh, V was huge. And it, you know, doing some research for this episode, I, you know, I, I realized that it wasn't just my perception of that. In 1984, obviously you had the Olympics. In Britain, V actually brought in more viewers that summer than the Olympic Games. I don't think that would happen these days. Something like the Olympics world over is always going to be far more popular, like, you know, much like the Football World Cup and the like. But you know, for a television series in its first airing in the UK, a US show, to pull in more viewers than the Olympics is just unheard of. Yeah, it sounds it sounds preposterous to even just say that. It, considering, like you said, this was expensive for the day it was made but overall fairly cheap as we would think of it today uh i think the adjusted value the adjusted value was something like 32 mil but they really spent 13 uh def deflated 1983 bucks uh on this thing and i i remember later on in the late 80s early 90s when star trek generation uh, star trek next generation was being given this enormous one million dollar an episode budget it was one of the first times i heard of tv being seen as this place where you can actually put more money into it and get a greater yield because people hadn't had that idea they thought ah whatever we'll just thrash and bullshit out how much does it cost to, to, to flip a few vans in front of mr t and george papard you didn't need to spend a lot of money on riptide and and uh magnum pi those those shows were all made on you know on, on the cheap or sitcoms all those things were made for pennies but this in spite of the, you know, what is a large auspice, it's this huge scale, it still was filmed on the cheap with a lot of matte photos and uh, layers and, and, you know, sets and, and things like that. Uh, you know, they did keep costs down. But for some reason, it had this gigantic, it just, yeah, maybe it was the Star Wars thing, like you said, the sci-fi thing, just cut through all the butterfat with, with, with a shot of like sour lemon juice. It made people stand up. It made people uh, get on board a cultural phenomenon. I and mean, it's probably the reason why we're still talking about it today. Yeah, and I think what it did was it cleverly took advantage of the fact that, you know, we, we've already mentioned, you know, the, the quite clear influence of Star Wars. But back then, early 80s, you know, my childhood was was sort of, molded probably more by tv um at, at that age than it was a film you know certainly i had a knowledge of star wars and you know through the the, the toys and things like that you know I, I was i was well into star wars at the time but you know thinking back you had things like masters of the universe transformers obviously over in the states you had gi joe which unfortunately was never really sold um big over here you had on tv you had the a-team as you mentioned you had knight rider you had lesser known shows, which at the time were quite big, like Airwolf, Streethawk. There was just a load of high concept television series that all seemed to come within the, the space of about three or four years. And most importantly, all seemed to come from America. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you guys were really spoiled over there. We The, the kind of standard of TV that we would watch was no. Oh, yeah. It was perhaps more highbrow and perhaps more, 
you guys love the Downton Abbey sort of stuff, don't you? Like, you know, as, <laughs> as, a, as a kid watching that in Britain, you don't want to see Downton Abbey. You want to, like you say, you want to see B.A. Baracus flip a van. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, you know, much of my childhood it was influenced by things which have come from, you know, from America. You know, I, I was obsessed with Star Wars. Uh, sorry, with um, with Transformers when, you know, that sort of exploded in 84. Some of my fondest childhood memories are going into, you know, Toys R Us and scouring the aisles for He-Man figures, for, you know, for, for rare Transformer toys. And, and you know, again, that was all tied into the, you know, the cartoons are on TV. And I almost, you know, when I listened to your G.I. Joe Wrong Wheel episode, I almost felt as if we'd been sort of robbed of like that extra sort of, you know, part of the puzzle. Because obviously G.I. Joe was all was, was tied very much to, to Transformers and the like. And we just... Listening to you talk so fondly about characters like Destro and Cobra Commander and Flint, they, they were characters I was only familiar of because of the action figures that we they, we would see in Toys R Us. And even then, it wasn't called G.I. Joe. It was Action Yeah, it was, called, action. it was renamed Action Force, yeah. Because yeah. It, it was tied into the, the, the British Action Man toy line of the, of the 60s and 70s. Yeah, you're, you're describing a kaleidoscope of Reagan-era uh, value. All these different things, whether they sold to other Anglophone countries, some of them, I guess... G.I. Joe really benefited from the fact that we were in the Cold War and it was this way to get kids on board with fighting back the commies. <laughs> I mean, whether it was exactly about that or not, I don't know. Otherwise, yeah, the big stuff you're talking about, that is high concept. It is very male-oriented shows. And it, I think it was coming from like three or four different producers. That was like Stephen J. Cannell and Donald Belisario. Like the, these are a couple of brands that were just thrashing this stuff out and no matter what they did they seemed to have a Midas touch where it just struck gold and like even little things like you mentioned um, Balisario wasn't he the one that his little logo at the end would be that was hit, that was Canal oh that was Canal hitting the keys on the typewriter and then he pulled a bit of paper out and it would it would sort yeah. of loop into the sea of the Canal logo they were basically yeah. they were basically the Jerry um, yeah the, the Brock, Don Simpson and Jerry Brookham on the TV yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. They'd be such a goldmine to, to sort of to delve into and go behind all the you know the making of these shows and the politics behind them. And, and in digging as we have in the V, you know, it, it's sort of given you a little sort of snapshot uh, you know, as to the landscape of TV at the time. And as much as TV these days is a different entity, and there's an argument that you know there's there's a much sort of richer sort of style of storytelling being told in long form on television than we've ever had before but aside, yeah, uh, you know aside from like slow burners things which sort of you know game of thrones didn't sort of explode onto screens in in the same way that that v did and it literally did it, you know it you know as those spaceships were sort of swallowing up the skyline it, it literally went from nothing to all of a sudden holy shit this is this show is is like nothing I've ever seen before on TV. And I was going to say, do you think that's perhaps why it exploded so quickly? Was the fact it was literally like you said. I remember my father saying, you know, he loves Star Wars, so he'll love this. It was almost that sort of factor to it, wasn't it? it was yeah. I, you know, from the American perspective, it may be different, but for, from our point of view, we were sort of like you say, watching things 12, 18 months after you guys got it. It was almost like a care package had arrived to us, and what a care package that was, you know. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> no, I think I think it was the exact same moment. I I honestly the you could talk about the state of uh, what Brit TV was like, and you know I'll I'll say the same thing a lot of Americans do is that our PBS was feeding us small little spoonfuls of English TV, and I mean I fucking idolized. Uh, the Pythons and Benny Hill and the little bit and Doctor Who, the old Tom Baker Who's, the things that actually got to us seem like, oh my God, there's this 
island out there in the middle of the channel filled with all this incredible culture. They're, they're holding it back. I'm just being given these little bits and pieces, these little corn kernels. It was like t- t- so tempting and, and tantalizing to know what the hell else did they have out in the UK. But I mean, I think America too. Because yeah, it had been primed by all the Spielberg culture, you know. And and if you have if you have Jaws begets Star Wars, and Star Wars begets Superman, and Superman begets whatever comes after that, uh, I, you know, like V fits right into the same exact moment. You do have this thing where people are ready to watch something big, and you know the the maybe the biggest selling point for V, if you especially if you again depreciate culture back to 1983 dollars is that um, movies did not have the same space to tell the story that V did on TV. Say what you will about the budget, say what you will about the soap opera-like acting and the sets and, and, and things like that, a lot of the lighting. It had a bigger palette and was able to tell a bigger arc with more characters in a way a film couldn't, which is another thing that sells V to me is just that broad space it just has a bigger vista than any film and yeah i mean you bringing up game of thrones i think is a really good example because now tv can be both it's it's tv season the film which we just didn't have back then but this is as close as you got yeah funny enough when i was watching i was thinking you know technology sort of limitations aside how did it take us so long to get to like sort of netflix era amazon era when you watch something like v i mean i saw a meme the other week and it was sort of like if you asked anyone to sit down and eight, watch an eight hour film they'd say no if you give them eight episodes of a box set they'll sit there and watch it in one hit you know? <laughs> and, yeah. and i was thinking i was, I was watching v, i was thinking why did it take so long yeah. for tv to catch on again you know i'm gonna tell you the same the same goddamn argument they say all that people don't want to pay for this you know, and meanwhile, you're at Netflix drops a, a mediocre season of Iron Fist, and it's their biggest, you know, the, the biggest hit on, on the Marvel Comics run of, of Netflix was this really pedestrian show, I Iron Fist. It wasn't nearly as good as Luke Cage, but either way, every single thing they've spat out in a 13-episode movie winds up being this huge cultural thing. Now, granted, obviously now, no one talks about it a week or two after it comes out. It's just like the world's greatest 13-hour film. But it it totally puts a lie to the fact that people wouldn't sit down for a large thing. And you're right, where had it been all these years? It makes no sense. Yeah, like you say, we're almost sort of oversaturated now with the Luke Cage thing. I mean, I did a review for the site for the second season of Luke Cage. I was totally blown away by it. And it was only recently this week when it was announced that that was being cancelled as well. I was like, yeah, well, you know. And it was only afterwards when I sort of reflected on it. I was like, no, actually, I want to see a third season of that, you know. But like I said, there's been been two or three seasons of whatever has come on Netflix since that I've sort of binge-watched. And it's like you say, it sort of pushes it back to the memory, doesn't it? Yeah, the, the the Daredevil thing where they came out, I guess, a week ago, and people like, oh, last weekend was everybody chewing their, you know, the inside of their mouth on Daredevil and and making sure that thing is gauded up, and it's like, oh, I'm really glad, but I, yeah, we're gonna forget about Daredevil for whatever the next thing that comes out is in a week from now. I get Red Dead Redemption in America, right? That that that's the big thing right now. This weekend is the video games coming out, and that's gonna wind up eating this all the daylight uh, from culture for the moment. Oh, absolutely, and you know, it. I think a good way to put it is. You, you take us three guys now, early 40s. You transport us back in time to 1980. Let's be yeah, <laughs> yeah. Three, three, suave, dapper, but still, um, you know, slightly curmudgeonly, early 40s gentlemen. Put us back in time to 1983, 1984. Give us access to cable television. Um, give us a free cinema pass to go to do with whatever we want. The big difference, I think, between the versions in the 80s and the versions now are going to be the fact that, as we are now... We have got so much open to us. My my to watch list of TV shows and films that I want to both rewatch and watch for the first time 
is so big that if I think about it for too long, it causes me anxiety. I'm never going to watch even a third of the things I want to watch. Whereas back in the 80s, you didn't have anywhere near the amount of, of material available to you to view. And I think that is what makes such a difference now. We, we live in a, in a world where I came late to the game with shows like Breaking Bad, which I probably watched about you know a year or two after the final season had, had ended. And even now, like you know, I, I could probably pick up a, a TV show that you know, I haven't seen from years back and watch it and still be amazed because I think what I find is if I don't devote myself completely to a show, I'll lose interest and then move on to the next big thing. And I think when we've got so much th stuff thrown at us, we are spoiled for choice. And then unfortunately, sometimes, you know, we're not seeing everything that we could see. And whereas we just didn't have this choice back in the 80s. And when something like V came, it made that much of a bigger impact because there was nothing else like it at the time. Yeah, but Sky, you know what that guy had back in that day? He could actually read. You know, you're talking about the th you're talking about the things that you had to give up. You gave up music. It's like I haven't yeah. read a book in about four years, thanks to yeah. podcasting and <laughs> around the clock entertainment. I was gonna say, when it comes to a book nowadays, it's like, is it on Audible? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and yet, I will sort of literally blatantly chastise my son for not reading. Oh, <laughs> and you know, I was, and it just goes to show how much stuff that we, you know, we, we've got access to. I, I was sat in the library the other day um, whilst my four-year-old was just, you know, looking for books to take on. I picked up a Michael Parkinson book about Muhammad Ali, and I started reading the first chapter of it. And I thought, oh, you know, I, I, I quite happily now go up to the desk, you know, take this book home for a couple of weeks, and and, and just blast through it. But the reality dawned on me that it's like, no, I've got podcasts to prepare for. Um, you know, the wife. And I are watching, you know, the, the the latest, you know, BBC sort of thriller, and I just won't have time to read it. And that's, you know, it's such a shame that I'm missing out on, you know, I basically want 48 hours in my day, 24 of which I'll de devote to my job, my family, and whatever, and then another 24 just to devote to taking in all of this stuff that we've got available to us. Yeah, it's killing me because the last book I bought was this book um, uh, a guy from the Wall Street Journal wrote called "Welcome to the Show That Never Ends," and it's about the birth of prog rock. You know, in the, in the UK in the late mid-70s. And I'm like, oh, this is right up my alley, but there's just no way I'm ever going to read it. And, you know, adding to that as well, you've also got the fact that we didn't have physical media back then uh, like we do now. Yeah. The, the VHS sort of, you know, the home video phase had just sort of started to ramp up. You know, there was this massive delay with uh, home video rentals and then being able to buy the film. Whereas now, you know, you've got a film, if it's released in the cinema, you can guarantee that it's going to be on digital download and Blu-ray within maximum of three to four months for, for most cases. And, and then you've, you've got you've got Blu-ray, you've got digital media, you've got cinema, you've got streaming, you've got books, podcasts, music. It's just it's just so much. And I think it's only going to get more, you know worse as, as, as you know these big corporate corporations like how long is it going to be now until Disney launch their own streaming platform? And yeah, it's then coming we, next year. Yeah. yeah. But but you know going back to V. Obviously, we've all had to rewatch it in prep for this. In light of how spoiled we are for choice and quality of television now, does V hold up? Neil, I'll start with you. Yeah, I'd, I'd say it does. I mean, it's definitely of, of its time. Like you're saying, like Bill was saying, with some of the effects that are a little bit, you know, shonky and stuff like that. But there was also rewatching it for like the third or fourth time this time round. There was a few sort of scenes in there where I was thinking, this actually could, be, could have been made yesterday. Yeah. You know, and like. Um, the actual premise of it, I think, is probably a, a little bit more intelligent than, than the sort of sci-fi we get nowadays. I mean, it's quite a cliche nowadays, but you know, I mean, I think it was, I think it was you, Bill was talking about the Reagan era. 
it was Regan who said, wasn't it, basically, that, you know, all the sort of petty squabbles we had on Earth, if aliens landed and started attacking us tomorrow, we'd all be one family. We'd yeah. all fight together, you know? I think, you know, the sort of analogy that they use on it, yeah, some of them are a little bit on the nose, but, yeah, I think it held up for me. Yeah, you know, I, I, think I have to agree with Mr. Gaskin on this one. In fact, for exactly the same reasons you're saying, there are moments in V, and I'm actually going to wait the back half of it a little more than the than the, the front half, just because it, it does close all the, the it closes all the deals that were open in the first part, I should say, the first miniseries. There are some conversations and some actual things that happen here. And not only that, it develops into a tone by the end of V, the final battle, that, like Neil said, there that aren't even replicated in today's TV, where we have a lot of media, and it shows a lot of things, and there are great hallway fights with Daredevil, things like that technically speaking, are incredible, and Game of Thrones shows things you'd never see before. But, I mean, for on national TV, the scene at the end, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hop to this because I, I had this relish. I'm taking notes, and I, I love it. When that turncoat, the collaborator, uh, David, is carried away, he's, he gets roughed up. He's almost brought out. He's got blood on his face. And, and, and Stephen, the alien viceroy, is sort of saying, I'm going to put you in a place where you can serve us well. And he's like, where is that? He goes, on a serving tray. And they drag the guy out, and he's screaming his way down the hallway. And I'm like, okay, so we've spent this entire miniseries, seven or so hours, building up this lathered hate for this little son of a bitch <laughs> because he's a collaborator in a turncoat. And knowing the the the, the, the absolute uh, primacy of storytelling is we want catharsis. We want to get paid off for dealing with this little shithead the whole time. We want him to die as painfully as possible. So rather than him get captured by Mark Singer, get, you know, and then, hey, we're all brothers on Earth. No, you get to see this guy dragged away to the worst fate possibly. He's going to be eaten by aliens. And I think that, wow, you know, even today, you wouldn't be given something as bleak in this moment. Uh, you know, as the humans are on the precipice of winning, you'd figure that the, the tone of the story would pull its boot off the neck of a lot of the bad guys. And this doesn't do that. It really, especially for the way Michael Ironsides, like, executes Steven at the end by <laughs> yeah. dumping that bag of powder in his fucking face. I just felt like this takes the time to do things and have conversations, which to me, I'm sure in 1984 were very uh, avant-garde, and they still feel kind of avant-garde today uh, in the way it just handles alien abortion, for instance. It's just not something you would ever be engaged with in the culture today. Maybe not even cable TV would do it. And this has so many moments of things like that, little gems and pearls for you to discover. And it's almost like, I was going to say, um, I you're not going to claim credit for that, Bill, because you shared that uh, on social media with the, the abortion debate. But right. it, was, it was almost like the sort of father or the reverend got brought in just so they could have a religious figure sat at the head of the table <laughs> debating about whether abortion yeah. was, you know, why abortion was wrong. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. like you say, I mean, we've probably got a lot more sort of a liberal sort of view over here on that subject than you guys do. I mean, you know, guys win elections over there on whether people should be able to have abortions. But you know, to actually do that, I mean, when you look at it in the sort of the, the sort of the, the pro-life and you know pro-abortion sort of arguments, always comes. What about rape victims? Well, if you look at Robin's character there, I mean, she's the absolute definition of a rape victim. Oh, absolutely, she? yeah. You know, this monster inside her, if you like, you know, put into her by a monster, and then to have a sort of religious figure sat at the end of the table. I mean, like you say, as broad-minded as cable TV and your Netflix and your HBOs are now, 
would that conversation actually make it to TV in this in this day and age? Well, you're certainly well, not going to have a conversation yeah. where you know Matt Murdoch and and you know Foggy Nelson are sat around the table <laughs> having a discussion about whether or not you know someone should have an abortion. It's no, a, sh- a show like Lena Dunham's Girls, for instance, which is totally in its lane, is going to hit that kind of thing. But you are not going to find a show deviate even you know one single uh, uh, you know one single millimeter out of its lane to grab something or become a little more hot button in something that doesn't have a core competency in. And to watch a show like this just like at a salad bar, right? Like Ken Johnson had this plate and a pair of tongs and he's like, hmm, I'll take some olives. I'll take some celery. I'll take some iceberg lettuce. I'll take some chicken salad, et cetera, et cetera. He gets a little bit of all these things. And, and maybe because the rules weren't quite set yet, maybe because gigantic event things weren't concrete the way they became. Also, today, everything's balkanized and siloed, as I keep saying. And so you would you just you would just watch a show about an abortion discussion or you would just watch a show like a man in the high castle strictly about, you know, an insurgency. And, and you know, you wouldn't marry the two of those things together. But this show did. Yeah, definitely. And like you say, it's, it's really a case now where if you look at like uh, like a, a sci fi genre, I mean, the, the controversy last year was an F-bomb was dropped on the latest new version of Star Trek. It's, that's just shock tactics. This actually had some sort of cerebral sort of sense to it, didn't it? Well, it was it, yeah. was, it was built into the story from early on when they set up the character of of um, Robin, of Robin and uh, Brian. Yeah, you know, I think that's the beauty of V Bill is why you say that you give a shit about these characters, even the bad guys, when they're finally off because it's clever, well thought out, detailed, long form storytelling. You know, V, I think at the time, it was like 56 speaking parts in the original miniseries, which at the time was just unheard of in television. And then you've got all of these different plot threads which are started, some of which, as you say, are not followed through by the time we get to the end of, of the, the final battle. It's taking time to tell a story about characters um, in a rich way. You've got. You know, all of these lengthy dialogue scenes, all of which are talking about things of, you know, the morality of what they're planning to do, you know, is fighting back against these aliens genocide when they're going to be end up possibly killing uh, some of the visitors who are on our side. And then, yeah. you know, one of the things that, you know, I wasn't initially aware of when I was first watching it, although, I, you know, I was the World War Two allegory is quite blatant from the start. But, you know, watching it back now, it, it's there. You've got. You know, the fact that they look like you've got these goose-stepping sort of fascist aliens. Uh, you've got the red and black uh, banners. Even the logo uh, you know, looks like the Schwarzstecker. Yep, yep. You know, everything about it, the way that um, you know, it plays upon you know, feeding distrust about the scientists, which I think Kenneth Johnson, that was his way of addressing the issue of the Jewish problem and how obviously the Nazis you know, spread this general feeling in, in, in Northern Europe about the fact that the Jews were something to be feared. Just like in V, the scientists are something to be feared because they don't trust the visitors who are here to help everyone. And if we allow them to carry on, then the visitors potentially could be forced to leave us and we, we're not going to benefit from all the... You know, the scientific and medical advances that they're bringing us. You know, there's some really clever writing there. And, and, you know, watching it, you know, this last couple of weeks in prep for this, some of it, yes, is on the nose, but it works so well because it isn't ashamed of the fact that it is a retelling of World War II. And the fact that it's got that sort of gloss and surface layer of science fiction, sort of, I don't know, it adds like 
and the unlike layers of depth to the show. Mm-hmm. Yeah, here's an interesting fact. I just remembered this, is that one of the things American TV did very well in the 1980s, and I was too young to appreciate this, but it's something I'm, I'm more aware of now, is that we had, especially due to the strength of Roots and V and things like that, we pushed all of our chips on the felt forward to the giant miniseries. And so after V, you have things like Larry McMurtry's Lonesome Dove comes out, and you have... Um, uh, Winds of War, the Herman Wouk adaptation. You have uh, the John Jakes's um, book adaptations. These big pot boilers from the South about the Civil War. You have the Blue and the Gray and North and South. So there are these big stamps on miniseries entertainment. Oh, and and this is I was reading this one today. I didn't realize V the Final Battle came out the very same chain of weeks that ABC was showing their own limited series called Last Days of Pompeii about the uh, eruption of Mount Vesuvius. It's the, you know, perfectly 1950s, 1960s themed Cecil B. DeMille type ripoff uh, with all these actors like Tony Curtis and whatnot doing TV roles slumming in the, in the later part of their career. But American TV specialized in these miniseries. And I think, like you said, a lot of things maybe get sloughed off to the side. But the more important things, it never lose track of closing each character's thread. I don't ever think they they, they don't ever like other than the uh, David's dad, the rabbi, Rabbi Bernstein's son, uh, the, the guy who's sort of um, his hand is wounded. You, you don't really you, he's the only guy you lose track of along the way. But every single account that's opened is almost finished as if they have this compulsive sense of continuity about making sure that the characters are taken care of and they do that really well oh yeah and if you know it's there are some characters some of the minor ones in particular mike donovan's son uh sean he ah, no offense to the kid he's a real he's he's a bad actor (laughs) and you know by the time the final battle comes around and he's been sort of pulled out of you know spoilers the the alien stasis he you know, every time he's on screen, his he's got these deep set black eyes that always really freak me out, and he, he he's extremely wooden. But he he's probably the prime example of just a, you know one of very few weak actors in V. Because as much as you know, it is cheesy. You know, there's a hell of a lot of cheese in V, but I think it makes up for it by the fact that surrounding that you've got so much great dialogue, you've got great set pieces, and it's just the way that little things which are which are started off and you might think you've got these inconsequential characters will give you like these nice little beats later on um you, you've got the two the, the two cops who are in charge of you know the, the sort of border patrol and one of them is he's sort of like the collaborator the guy with with the mustache and he's he's really heavy-handed when he's turning people over and, and seeing if they you know if, if they're smuggling people you know between america and mexico and then you've got the other cop who, you know you know they set up quite early on the fact that he is you know he's a good guy he's, he's one of us and and then you've got that you know a few little beats later on where that's that that sort of pays off when he you know he turns a blind eye to uh to ruby throwing the you know the molotov cocktail into the visitor's ship and you know he he looks in the back of, of the truck where the maxwells are hiding and and he sort of you know says to his partner yeah we're all good here and, and it's like little things like that that, you know, they're, they're simple things. It, you know, it, it doesn't take a genius to write something like that. But when you've got a series or, or you know, a, or a three and a half hour film or, or, or seven and a half when you take the, the final battle into account, where all of these little plot threads are starting and, and they're paying off, you know, that overall really satisfying narrative just makes up for a few of the other little things, which, you know, and we're going to come to the bit of the end with the star child, which, you know, watching now, I know, Neil, you you, you thought that was really just on the nose. I, I managed to block that from my memory for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was in the sky, I watched it, and I was like literally going, 
do I really want to do this podcast now? When he first suggested, I was really sort of enthusiastic about it. But you know, we're gonna we're gonna give him a break on that, surely, aren't we, Bill? Uh, I think you have to. I mean, if you want, you can sort of squint and turn the TV around and look at it through your closed fingers and, and sort of say, well, maybe something else happened than what actually did happen, just to give them a pass. And I will agree with you. It's like it, 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 maybe what happens is the little decoder machine is, is working on defeating the self-destructive. Maybe maybe in my head that's what actually pulled it through, not the girl with the glowing arms. It, it was all. It was almost the case for me where you know I sort of love the sort of like um, Hollywood sort of old stories and you know about why this ended up being the film. And Rocky's the classic example. There's several scenes in Rocky which was literally just you know we couldn't afford the extras that day, so we decided the ice ring should be closed. <laughs> you know, <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know Sly had to sit on the side and sort of rewrite the script there and then you know and come up this great monologue or whatever you know. And as I was watching, I was thinking, like, I really hope that was the case. I really hope that it was supposed to be some sort of dynamic special effect or perhaps they were only allowed to film it once and it went wrong. And they were like, we'll just get a star child to glow a bit, you know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the, the tension is racking up. Like, you know, the, the nice thing is that set that they use for the spaceship bridge at the end. It was really nice that it was a practical and in front of it was either a real foreshortened skyline of Los Angeles in front of them. You know, that wasn't like a matte painting. It was like a foreshortened sculpture. And they switched it out while they were doing it to a star field to make it look like, okay, the ship really did go into outer space, yeah. you know, as you would expect to see. So I feel like they keep saying the engines are burning out. They're losing this engine and, you know, the, the ship is losing integrity. All they needed to do was get far away from Earth. So, you know, it didn't kill the tension to me that they managed to shut the thing off by any means necessary. Again, I just felt like there was already so much. Get that damn ship out of the atmosphere. Doesn't really matter how it happens. There's already just so much in the game. You know, Earth is saved. Our alien buddies are okay. And you know what? Let's say Mike and Martin and the rest of those guys had died on board. That would have been a really noble sacrifice if they had gone that route. They never would, but that would have been a really exciting story element. Yeah, definitely. I think, like you say, it... (laughs) You know, ultimately led to V the TV series, so you know, in a way, it's a, it's a curse that it didn't happen. It, it almost would have been a blessing, perhaps, like you say, if, if they had sacrificed themselves, it would have been almost befitting to the to the sort of you know, this is dedicated to resistance fighters from you know, you know, the past, yeah. the future, and the present. You know, because so many yeah. people did lay down their lives for, you know, like I say, a noble cause, the great, the good, if you like. Yeah. Hey, one thing I wanted to ask, Sky, because you mentioned the cheese factor of this, and I, I kind of want to go back that for a minute. I feel like there's a delicious fromage do 1980s in here, <laughs> which is really wonderful. Like, you know, I my, my mother used to torture us in like 1982 through 1987 by watching Dallas and Falcon Crest, a lot of those nighttime dramas. And I don't know how big those things played over in the UK. Oh, Bill, they were huge. Bill, I, 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 I have no shame saying this. As a child... I, I love Dallas. My, my, I was my, Dynasty, my, I was. I was Dynasty. Ah, right, Friday night. No, I, I, I was Dallas all the way. Um, you know, <laughs> p- pivotal moments in my upbringing with regards to things that I saw on television were um, Bobby Ewing getting out of the shower a year after he'd been shot and the whole sort of last year of the show being erased. Do you know what? I've just remembered there was a spin-off called the... What was the Colby's? The, the, uh, it was a spin-off of da- Dynasty. Yeah, yeah. And Colby's, w- yeah. One of them was kidnapped by an alien. I'm pretty sure it was the grown-up version of that baby. <laughs> <laughs> no, so... You know, thing, things like Dallas and Dynasty, you know, with... You know, and Joan Collins, for God's sake, you know. It, they, they were huge in the UK. I have no shame in saying it. I was a huge Dallas fan just through osmosis from the fact that my mother... 
loved it and and then you know she'd be like oh it's nine o'clock dallas is on and you know I, i'd be just glad to be staying up past nine o'clock so you know I, I wouldn't make too much of a fuss and say i want to go play with my you know action figures or whatever i'd sit down and watch it and after a few episodes i was hooked you know it was yep. it is cheese and you know i i've never i've not gone back to watch things like that you know since and like they probably haven't aged well at all but while we are on the subject of dallas i'm right in thinking now that there is a connection between dallas and vns mark singer is it I don't know. Yeah, I think I think he may have slipped into. I, I, I can't, Dallas, I can't I confirm that, but I think you're yeah, right. I'm pretty sure he was in Dallas. So, so, guys, obviously, we've given like sort of an overview of the general themes of V, the sort of impact it had on both us and on like you know the sort of cultural landscape at the time. Let's just shotgun it and just go through and and pick out our, 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 the things about V, you know, the, the whole near eight hour running time that we love, the things that you know stand out to us, Neil. I'm going to jump right ahead of the game. I'm going to fill, uh, follow Bill's uh, lead here and just go all over the shop. <laughs> yeah, yeah. For me, Ham Tyler. Oh, God. Michael, yes, Michael right, Ironside. Yes, right. And the fight between Donovan and Tyler is <laughs> something that, well, with our shared appreciation of Roadhouse here, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> this, this fight is one of the greatest fights I have ever seen. It is like Shatner on steroids. It takes place... Yep. And they end up this almost Balearic grease of rolling across <laughs> a yeah. pickup truck and fighting on the bonnet. If one of those men was the first male to conceive after that fight, I would not be shocked. I, I, I'm a huge fan of Mark Singer. He's going to get a lot of flack for his unique ability to strike poses. And, and by the time this is, I, I'm going to basically flood Twitter and Facebook with, with images I've collected over the last few years of Mark Singer pose, <laughs> posing in promotional shots for V, Beastmaster, and things like that. He always looks sort of semi-quizzical whilst aggressively actioneered at the same time. <laughs> he That's he great. is. Yeah. yeah. It, basically, if... Well, like, I'm going to shoot you, but I'm not quite sure why. Yeah. <laughs> You know, when you were a kid, it was like, what, who are you going to be? Are going to be Han Solo or Luke Skywalker? No, I'm going to be Mike Donovan, uh, a TV cameraman <laughs> who, <laughs> you know, aside from his innate ability to converse with animals uh, as, as Beastmaster... <laughs> he, he was. He was the blueprint for He-Man. He, yeah, he was. You know, he, he's a huge guy. Um, you know, he's in great shape. He is incredibly handy with a gun that he's only just learned to, you know, pick up and fire. He, you know... These like stormtrooper-esque, you know, visitor soldiers. You know that they couldn't hit the side of a barn door with a tennis racket yet. You know he he's firing off like a you know like a, a lone gunman and whilst looking quizzical. Yeah, he he's just he's an all-round. You know, as, as a young lad, that's the superhero that you want to be. I was going to say that it sort of struck me with the sort of you know the Orson Welles War of the Worlds thing was like you know the night the radio sort of took over the world and everyone thought the aliens had landed yeah the sort of almost sort of modern spin of it would be tv you know you know and it's so a lot to be said for sort of today's sort of climate as well where you know if you're going to win people over you have to do it through the media yeah and I, there was one bit on that where where mike donovan's finally going to reveal what he's filmed on the spaceship oh, yeah. and then of course you know the visitors take over and you know we we now own the tv and i was thinking there's so much you could read into oh, that you did, there's, there's you know there's elements of like little things that reminded me of like all the president's men and things like that you know things where you've got this reporter trying to unearth a conspiracy and as much as it only takes up a little fraction of the running time there's, there's little things threaded throughout it because like you see because even to the time when you get to the point where uh, john sort of gets revealed yeah instantly as long as the sort of the broadcaster says no, it's it's just false. Don't look at it. It was like 
what would 90% of the population of America or I suppose the world say yeah fine that was obviously a terrorist attack and you know yeah. surely you know you would see that that was the truth that that was a lizard underneath there but I, I mean I look I hate to make this topical but you know which has been happening on the east coast over the last few days yeah, yeah. And you have a lot of people in a lot of powerful positions refuting it and saying no what you see is not what happened and even though they caught the guy today, I won't even go into it any further, people are still pushing back with these uh, alternative false narratives. And so th this thing winds up being incredibly prescient for that same exact reason over – I mean, you know, to your point, what they did as soon as they ripped uh, John's face off, they go and restage it like a moon landing. And this time they change the outcome so that the humans are pushed back by the heroic alien guards. And that's the version that gets out at night is the Stanley Kubrick moon landing version. Yeah. So, I mean, that's hap it happens today. I right. mean, because it's that sort of, sort of you know, oft-quoted theory, you know, that we want to believe in conspiracies. We want to believe that – you know, things are happening, bubbling underneath the surface. And it's almost the reverse of that as well. Is it, when something is presented to you, if you, you know, the classic sort of 9-11 thing, when everyone goes, well, obviously that didn't happen. It's like, yeah, fucking thousands of people saw it happen. We, we'll always look for, oh yeah, but look at the way that building fell. And I suppose it would be the same sort of impact of, well, maybe, you know, maybe this was some sort of terrorist pirate TV takeover, you know? Yeah, yeah. By the way, I, I will, effort, go, to go back to the, the uh, Mark Singer thing. I actually think, I'm being totally serious here, I think Mark Singer actually does a, I wasn't expecting this because of the way it started out with Mark Singer playing a bargain basement version of Jimmy Woods in El in Salvador at the very beginning where he's in a country filming this re yeah. re revolution as it all goes to shit. As this thing goes on, especially in the second half, Singer actually picks up his game. He becomes a different kind of actor. He, uh, like you said, uh, the Shatner thing is great because the way Nick Meyer ran Shatner on the set of uh, Wrath of Khan, he does a different type of acting while still maintaining his own thing. And I think Singer actually gets somewhere where he becomes a much more affected or effective actor where he actually, you see him looking at his co-stars and actually listening to what they say. <laughs> I think he becomes better yeah. either because the directors understand that guy Heffron who did the second miniseries, I think may have known how to run Mark Singer a little better than the guy who did the first miniseries. Yeah, I think what it was, by the time, you know, the final battle had come around, Mark Singer was so familiar with this character he'd created for himself. It was by, by then he's very comfortable in his own skin and, you know, he sort of probably made up in his head these little sort of, you know, mannerisms of the character and, the, and ultimately that he's a very wholesome sort of square-jawed good guy. But at the same time, there's a little bit of an edge to him. Well, they, they give him that sort of out almost instantly, do they? Because, like you say, he's the good sort of square jawed all American good guy. But then he's got an ex wife. He's got a son. Yeah. He doesn't see a lot of. He's obviously having an affair yeah, with yeah. The, you know with the, the TV anchor, and you know that's probably the cause of his marriage. Mm. So they make him slightly flawed. Anyway. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. It was so prevalent in my mind when I was going into this, thinking, "Am I going to be heartbroken?" Um, looking at it now, you know, forty-one years old, and and being far more experienced in. in the things I've seen since I last watched V, is it going to let me down? And I've got to say, this is probably the most I've ever enjoyed V. And V, from the very start, is something, you know, I, I, I'm not ashamed to say this. I don't even know if I can look at V objectively anymore. It is literally something that I, I feel as much a fondness of as I do something like Star Wars. Because I, I probably was at the perfect age to watch V when I first saw it, and it left such an imprint on me. And, and being able to watch it now and to see all these layers of character depth, of, of storytelling, um, of, of analogy. And then you, you know, you've got things like the characters. That, you know, we could go through them probably for about an hour and not even scratch the surface. You've got Jane Badler as Diana. Let's, you know, let's open that sort of 
Pandora's yeah. box. Do you know what? Actually, <laughs> actually watch this. I mean, Jay Badler, and I, I, I know you saw something I shared with uh, Kevin Meyer on uh, Facebook the other day. Yeah, 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 yeah. But let's let's go back to Jay Badler at the beginning of this. I mean, so much is made nowadays of. You know, I'm going to stick to the sort of sci-fi and fantasy genre of like Wonder Woman being such a great success of. You know, the latest Star Wars has got female-led characters. And I'll discount Wonder Woman because, you know, that's obviously a female character. But a lot of times I feel like we almost get a strong, kick-ass female or the sort of... There was a lot made of uh, Thor Ragnarok, wasn't it? With, uh, Valkyrie. Hel- yeah, with Valkyrie and Helena. Yeah. This doesn't feel, I was going to say, as tacked on, you know? And um, it's one of my sort of pet peeves. Whenever people say, you know, I'm a massive Doctor Who fan. I'm really enjoying jo- uh, Jodie Whittaker as Doctor Who. But that's not because I'm, you know, a social justice warrior, or it's not because I want to score points with anyone. I'm just enjoying her playing that character. But a lot of the time, I do feel that it almost gets sort of rammed down our throats. Now we need to have a strong, you know, female yeah. character, and and she just does it effortlessly. Oh, it, yeah. I, yeah. There's there's so much bullshit that goes on about that. People saying that the last Star Wars film just put female characters front and center. Don't give me that. You had, you know, the original trilogy. Princess Leia had a shit together far better than Han Solo and Luke Skywalker did. You you look at V. You've got you know, the the main prominent bad guy, so to speak, is Diana. She, she is ultimately the one that you know she she puts aside all of her enemies. She's she's got this this grand plan. And then the flip side of that, you've got Julie Parrish, a character that goes through this, this you know quite a decent, detailed sort of roller coaster story arc where she's also subject of suspicion when she gets kidnapped and, and subjected to the conversion process. Again, and, uh, I was going to say there's that thing with, with Julie as well where. It was only this time round watching it with sort of like an older, sort of wiser head on. But Mike Donovan's not actually the hero of this piece. No, it's, she's it's, the one who brings you together. That's actually you know? a really good point. Yeah, yeah. yeah Julie Pash overcomes far more than you know. She could have easily easily succumbed to that conversion process, but she, well, she's she's a prime mover in the plot. I mean, yeah. not just not just it. She actually has a lot more to do with figuring what to do, making correct moves, and again, as part of the science team. The irony is that they were trying to sideline the scientists, and the scientists do wind up becoming the the biggest threat they have to contend with. It's almost like they invent their own resistance. But yeah, Juliet is at the center of all those things. That's good storytelling by Johnson. Yeah, and her sort of story arc is probably more pronounced than any of the others. Because if you look at the beginning, she's kind of dependent on that sort of Dallasite type boyfriend that she's got. Mm-hmm. You know, and she's sort of almost sort of apologizing for her job to begin with, isn't she? You know, and she's like, yeah. well, do you want yeah. me to leave? And he's like, I think you should do what you want to do. You know, that type of thing. And then she almost gets sort of forced into this leader role. And she's the one really, like you say, that brings it all together all the way mm. through the story, isn't she? But yeah. I just always think with things like this, as long as the story works, it doesn't matter if it's a man, if it's a woman, if it's black, white, yellow, green, whatever, just make the character good, write it well. And yeah. like I say, watching it this time round, I was like, this is a really well-formed, fleshed-out character, yeah? And it wouldn't matter if it was a male or female. It, 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 even, you know, going beyond that, you look at the side characters, look at the little sort of sub-story arc you've got with Caleb, Caleb yeah. Benjamin... And Elias, you you've got you know this 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 old grizzle guy that works in a, you know in a was in an energy plant or or a chemical plant. Yeah. You know, yeah. he's, he's got two sons, one of which is a, you know the older uh, successful doctor type, and then the other one, Elias, is is like a sort of a low level sort of street punk uh, of the best variety because he's like literally huggy bear variety. Oh, absolutely! And at the first, you get, <laughs> I need. I, yeah. I was waiting for the phrase "jive turkey" to be used. Oh yeah, he's you know he's a little bit on the nose at first, but then you look at the little story arc you've got there. You've got Benjamin's death, uh, which then leads to a scene where 
Oh, Michael Wright. Michael Wright. Yeah, you got you got Michael Wright. The, the scene where Julie drives up to him and, and shows him that you know his brother's been shot and, and is basically on death's door. That little bit of acting there with Michael Wright, where he's pacing back and forth and he refuses to look at his brother, I mean, even though his brother actually dies doing the little monologue he's got, and he's going on saying, "No, no, not not him, man, not him. The other brother, the other brother can go, not the doctor." And it's the whole way that it takes about two or three minutes for him to realise that his brother is dying there in front of him. His complete refusal to accept it. And then subsequent realisation that his brother, his, who is his ultimately, even though he's the one he's got you know, loads of antagonism and jealousy towards, he is his, 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 his ultimate idol, idol, his role model. And then you've got the later scene there with, um, with, with Caleb, who has formed a little bit of a friendship with Willie, who, you know, we, we haven't even talked about Willie, played by Freddy Krueger himself, Robert Englund. Oh, yeah. And then you've got the funeral scene where Elias is holding his father back and his father's pushed Willie over and he's he's got that just complete anguish. And it's like the sort of anguish that is played out. And it, it, it's like on in Godfather 3 where Al Pacino is sort of crying on the steps and he's so, he can't even get, he can't even scream. He's so distraught. And there's a similar sort of performance coming from Caleb. Then there's so much quality acting, even though, yeah, you know, there's moments of cheese. It, there's certain parts of V that it does literally get me choked up. Yeah, and I was going to say that was the one part with you see that it's such a large cast. Yeah. But going back to the sort of television thing, it amazed me that the first sort of 10 minutes of V, really the opening gambit, is just everyone watching it on TV. Yeah. And you get these introductions to these characters from all different walks of life. And like you say, with Caleb there, it's almost that sort of disappointment that he's got in his younger son. It's almost like you write the backstory for him straight away to yeah. say that he gave both kids the same chance. You know, he's worked in this you know sort of he's worked with his hands to sort of put his kids through college one took the opportunity the other one didn't like yeah. you say you know the younger brother then has to really sort of you know step up because he probably almost he's had every probably almost had every opportunity the older brother had and you know the the, the way that you know the, the the final sort of point of that story arc is where uh, Jason Bernard Caleb uh, uh, towards the end of final battle he just pulls Elias aside and, and Elias is thinking he's going to come down on him again. He's going to berate him because you know they've had another one of the lengthy discussions about the morality of, of, of the plan that they're going to put in motion. And he's like, oh, Dad, you're going to come down on me again. He's like, no, son. What you said in there, I didn't agree with you. But you put it across in such a way that, you know, I, I'm really proud of the man you've become. And, you know, it even like the subtlety of, they could have gone all in and just said, oh, look, I'm really proud of you. You've done amazing. But there was a little bit, you know, a little bit of a sting of, I didn't agree with you, but still, you know, I'm proud of you, son. And it's, it's just, maybe it's because I'm a father myself and I'm now more receptive to that sort of, I don't know, I don't want to use the word schmaltz because, you know, I think there's a lot more to it than that. No, but I, it, I, it, I think it's schmaltz. I think, you know, you know it's a cliche thing of being a parent, isn't it? But I think it does make you sort of see the world through different eyes because you... I kind of say things or do things sometimes and I think, oh, I'm setting a really bad example. But you know, just like daft things I think are funny. And then I'll think, well, no, because 10 years time, you'll be doing the same shit and you'll be okay. Yeah. But yeah. you do sort of like, you almost want to try and shape a world for your child. It's you know? parental anxiety. Yeah, you're always, you always want the best for you your know, child. And, yeah. you know, you, you, you're always judging yourself about the way you interact with your children. And just some of these interactions there between Caleb and... Uh... I mean, look at the the, the Kate... The uh, Caleb and, and his son's uh, uh, dynamic is played out in contrast to David. 
the you know another weird thing he's in a he's written as Jewish and he winds up being a collaborator as if you have a Jew collaborating with the Nazis in this one, and so he is this kid who's given every suburban advantage you can imagine, and he winds up turning into a real you know a real uh, a rat fucker too because he just gives over everything he dimes on his own family, it's every single bit of fealty and piety that is paid off with Caleb is undermined with David and his and his parents and his grandfather. So whether it's a study in contrast between these two guys who, you know, may in fact be as old as one, maybe they have the same age in common, but it is, um, you see the downfall, the decline, the sort of de- the, the depreciation of the human spirit, how one man could be so loses humanity and lose all compassion, especially when David, for instance, is like telling the doctors to lick his boots outside the, the hotel, uh, not the hotel, the hospital. As a, and terrible, as opposed to the heights that Elias achieves, where he starts off with this idea that no one has, he has no expectations for himself, and he quietly becomes one of the most effective members of the resistance, strictly because he's clever, quick, fast, acuitive, and ambitious. And so they need him at the end. And you know, one guy falls apart, one guy puts himself together, but it's another great you know study of two foil characters. Yeah, but it's almost the guy the guy falling apart is almost because I. You sort of get the impression he's always had everything given to him, hasn't he? So he always wants more. Well, yeah. He's never yeah. had to fight for anything, you know. So it's, I suppose, yeah, it works on that way, doesn't it? And you, you said Neil about you know you started off straight out of the gate, Ham Tyler. Now, <laughs> you know, you, Ham Tyler doesn't even get introduced until a third of the way through v the final battle. <laughs> now I'm right in thinking that Ironside would have been quite because, like we say nowadays, there's nothing to see a big sort of movie star appearing in sort of a Netflix series. But I would think at this stage he was kind he, of break, he's kind of breaking it as a movie star. Well, Bill, correct me if I'm wrong. Scanners, David Cronenberg, uh, was that 1982? Yeah, yeah. So, so Scanners, Scanners is 82. Yeah. At this point, yeah. You know, it, you know, as much as Scanners wasn't like a you know a big budget you know, sort of blockbuster, he he was still well known. Where do we go with the story? Uh, we're sort of ramping things up. We've got our established base of characters. What can we do to sort of inject a little bit of interest in it? We'll throw in Michael Ironside. Now, perhaps the best perhaps the best introduction of any character you will ever get to me. Watching this time around, I was like, my God, I know he's a badass. I know he's a badass because I've yeah. already seen it. But if I was watching this with completely fresh eyes, instantly I would go, yeah, we need this guy on site. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> and it's Before the way he's fired a weapon. Yeah. Just and, the way he talks. He's, he's introduced by, um, isn't he scoping out the um, the resistance? Yeah, and he's, yeah. he's already got that sort of backstory with uh, Donovan, has he? Where he calls Donovan Gooder. Gooder, oh, yeah. You know, <laughs> so you sort of get the impression that, you know, while he was down Salvador Way, yeah. <laughs> he's went into this mercenary before, you know? Well, also, it, the way they introduce, like you said, Sky, he comes in one-third into the final back half of the miniseries. The timing is set up. He's like introducing a new Cosby cousin or mm. cousin Oliver. There's yeah. this thing like, oh, we need to pick up the energy. It, it's almost set up to fail or to have this cynical idea of, well, we need – it's an injection. It looks yeah. false a little bit, and yet it turns out that uh, he winds up paying his own ticket essentially by – injecting something and bringing Michael Ironside-ness to it that yeah. wasn't there before. So it does wind up working out. And, you know, I think it's definitely the greatest role you'll ever see Michael Ironside in where he doesn't lose a limb. Yeah, obviously <laughs> you know, he's, he's lost limbs in uh, Recall, Total Recall, Starship Troopers, Machinist. Machinist, yeah. And you know, two things that, that hit me. Um, you know, I've always been a huge fan of Michael Ironside and especially of his character in V. But two things have dawned on me now coming out of this most recent rewatch. Firstly... 
the big problem everyone's saying about the new Star Wars films. How do we solve the Star Wars films so they satisfy everyone? Simple. Put a Michael, Michael Ironside in it. You take anything, be it a TV show or a film, and you add Michael Ironside to it, and that will be instantly become exponentially better. That's, 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 that's the one thing I took from this. That's the Hollywood rule, yeah. I believe. And secondly, if I do end up having a third child, and it's a son, I'm going to insist on my wife that we call him Ham. Is this like the time you wanted to call my son Roy? Yeah, but I... Because, you know, Ham... <laughs> Show, show me a more capable and just ultimately badass guy than Ham Tyler. Hamilton Tyler. I, you know, I, I, I got to say, I've got a man crush on him. I, I love the guy. He's yeah, just he's, fucking awesome. And he's got that great sidekick as well, which is uh, oh, yeah, the, Mick, Mickey Jones. Who, yeah, yeah. Chris yeah. Faber. Chris. And all the way through, I was watching this thinking, is he the fat guy from Roadhouse, Bill? Sorry to keep coming back to that Romeo episode. Everything, and all, not, all roads he? lead back to Roadhouse. It's, it's I, like, I thought for sure he was one of, I thought he was one of the guys that Schwarzenegger stole the clothes from in either Terminator or Terminator 2, because he looks like one of those guys that's in the honky-tonk bar. He looks he, like, but he was actually in Total Recall. So you asked where you probably get it mixed up. Yeah, yeah he's yeah. the guy on the train, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, he, 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 the, yeah. When um, Quaid is on the on the the train on Mars, you're looking at key scenes in it. Obviously, you've got the incredible introduction where we first see these motherships. Now, if someone you know someone in their twenties now is is to go back and watch something like V, having seen something like Independence Day, then you know the, the whole smack across the face is, is going to be lost on them because they've seen something like that before. But like back in early 96, when you first had those promotional posters and then the first trailers came out of Independence Day, that just woke up my sort of, you know, nostalgia node in my brain like nothing else. I thought, oh, holy shit, someone like me, who's a lot older and is making films, has gone back and thought, you know what, let's, let's remake V. Let, and albeit, you know, the, the aliens were of a completely different type. They were just, you know, there was no infiltration. It was just complete eradication. But that opening third of the film, which, um, you know, Steve Amos has written a piece about Independence Day recently for the site. And, you know, when, when he submitted the first draft, I was like, oh, Steve, Steve, come on. You've got to mention something about V. And he said, yeah, I know, but there's so many influences in Independence Day that I didn't know where to start. I said, yeah, you, you've got to put something about V in there. Because yeah. for me personally, when I saw those, you know, spaceships coming out of the clouds in Independence Day, I thought, it's V all over again. But, you know, go, go, even going back and watching it now, it's still really effective. Yeah, you know, a lot of them, you know, unbelievably... Um, Apart from a few shots in the the final battle in the first mini series, all of those motherships are actually matte paintings. Yeah, they're yeah. I think they may have been one or two miniatures, but for the most part, they are matte paintings. Yeah. Yeah, I think certain segments of the ship are, are actual models, but when you see the actual full view of the mothership, it, you know, and, and they, you know, there's a lack of continuity between some of them. But some of the shots, in particular, you've got one, particularly shots in daylight where they use sort of cloud or mist to obscure it. They are the ones that sort of look best, and, and you know, sort of scale is maintained. But, you know, the effects, they, it, it was a limited budget. And certainly the amount of reused effect shots is quite apparent, certainly as you go, you know, throughout the show. An eight-year-old child watching that is not going to be watching it with the same sort of, you know, critical view. And, you know, it just imprinted on me something like, you know, I'd never seen on TV before. This was Star Wars scale epicness on, on, on my TV screen. Yeah, well, people think that they saw um, Janet Lee stabbed in Psycho, when clearly that's not what happened. It was the persistence of image fooled you into thinking that you were watching a murder same thing with texas chainsaw massacre you don't actually see anyone you know at no point does a weapon penetrate someone's body cavity it's intimated and or shown from behind i think the same thing here 
people hadn't really seen things like this. I mean, other than the, the, the Star Destroyer from the beginning of Star Wars, where you have the sense of scale and enormous hugeness, I think you could you could have fooled a 31-year-old person with this. I mean, I, I, did anybody complain in the day and age that this was shot, that uh, Diana's fake head with her telescoping jaw looked somehow you know, bonkers fake as opposed to just effectively selling the creepy effect. I don't think people got hooked up on that. I think they bought it because you just never see anything like it before. And it was all, you know, context appropriate. Yeah, I think we, I think we're almost spoiled now with um, sort of CGI effects where you almost accept that everything should look hyper real. I mean, for instance, sake, one of the things that stopped me, other than the fact he's way too young, uh, from letting my son watch the original Robocop was I know when it get to the point of the Ed 209 and sort of Dick Jones being thrown out of the building where mm. he would then say to me yeah. oh effects in your day were crap you know yeah. <laughs> you know <laughs> <laughs> but that that's because you know the spoiled old bastard's been raised on you know Pirates of the Caribbean or whatever you know where things can look ultra realistic mm. and I th- like you said, it was almost a sort of forgiveness that we used to give to things I mean if you look at the original Terminator the stop motion at the end of that I'll watch that now with almost sentimental eyes, but watching it originally, it was almost like, yeah, I know it's, I know it's not real, but you know, this is part of the story. And yeah. you, you sort of almost had a sort of forgiveness to, to to that sort of factor, didn't you? Yeah. Well, if you if you can't bigger and better than what you just saw, that's why all those Harryhausen stop motions. Granted, people understood they weren't real. However, there was nothing better real than what you got, and so there, your the human vista, the eyeball, had nothing to. You know what's going to exceed it? How how are you supposed supposedly supposed to look at that and say, ah, oh, that looks fake and bullshit? You weren't going to do that. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say because one of the sort of slights against the latest like, like Jurassic Park film or Jurassic World film, as they yeah. are now. You know, I've heard people say, well, the effects in this don't look as good as the original Jurassic Park, and there's it, a part of me that sort of agrees with that, but there's always a part of me that goes, yeah, they probably do, but no, we just expect a lot more. Yeah, I don't know. We we mentioned this in the last episode, Steve, uh, James, and I. We were talking about you know how when you film these big Hollywood historical epics for real, it's always going to look better than trying to recreate it in miniature or with CGI. With V, I think you've got to take it for what it was at the time. You, you know, you mentioned the Terminator, the, the scene where he's doing the eyeball surgery on himself. That always gets a lot, lot of flack because of the fact it doesn't look completely convincing. But you know, that was a $6.4 million budget film of which yeah. you know only about you know i think just under a million dollars was was devoted to special effects and like human ingenuity with that as well absolutely rather yeah. than what program we got or what system are we running you know a lot of the sort of you know, you say the harry house and stuff definitely but even if you go to sort of early to mid 80s you've got your, your tom savini's and your robin yes yeah. who really have to sort of think on their feet to yeah, say, yeah, how can is, I make yeah. this look as realistic as possible it, it was a it was a pioneering time of, of practical effects but you you, you, yeah, the bit where Diana's jaw completely distends and she puts the, the gerbil or whatever it is, it, it does look ridiculous. But then if you look at the, the sort of bloated throat thing afterwards when she's swallowing it, that looks incredibly convincing. You can't even yeah. see any seams. So, you know, you yeah. sort of, you're, you're giving with one hand, you're taking away with the other. But overall, I think when you balance out all the good stuff in, you know, these two miniseries put together, it's just like a smorgasbord of just fucking goodness and stuff to, like... You know, you've to pour over and to debate and discuss, and it completely it, it completely took me by surprise how much this this show has aged extremely well. You've got that get out of jail card as well because you know although we sort of see what's underneath the skin, we never fully see what's underneath the skin, so we don't really know yeah. how you know the anatomy of a jawline or a throat works. So yeah. you know you, you you've got a lot to compare with, really, have you? 
But yeah, you know, that's but true. Before I forget, this the one scene which you know. Hopefully, I'm going to be able to find the clip, uh, you know, that we can like sort of insert into into this later on. But you, you've got that scene where, you know, I, how many times did Mike end up on on the on the mothership and then escape? Yes, you thought they'd have worked it out. This, this <laughs> a, again, bear in mind, this is probably the fifth time I've watched V. You start to to, to pick up a, a you know a few things about Mike Donovan's character. And firstly, he keeps going back to that damn mothership, and he keeps end, you know he ends up getting away by the skin of his teeth. Another thing is. The guy cannot button his shirt up, even when it's necessary to the plot. Where in the final battle, where he's wearing the, the sort of neck, voice modulator, the thing. voice modulator, <laughs> and he's on the mothership yet again, probably the fifth or sixth time. It'll be it'll be guess free, you know, frequent flyer miles. Chest. Yeah, he, he's 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 got to close his collar with his hand. And like, no, Mike, stop for a second, turn around, button your fucking shirt up, so people won't be able to see it. <laughs> well, but, you what know, you've got to realise is. This, this that was a lot of Beastmaster steroids. Going oh on. yeah, yeah, yeah. He still had that bit of a physique. He wanted to show yeah, it off. Yeah, <laughs> I would mind bet that was written to his contract. At all yeah, times, Ma- I must have a plunging neckline. Mark, yeah, sorry guys, can we cut? Can we, Mark? Can we have a little bit more chest? Can you just maybe open up an extra button? <laughs> yeah, no, no nipple, but yeah, I just want to see a pack. That's good. And like you say, the only sort of real sort of I was going to say love scene because there's a couple of sex scenes in it, but the only sort of real love scene is him and Julie. Mm-hmm. And if you notice, sort of especially that sort of era would have been, oh, we'd have at least got a bit of side boob off Julie yeah. or a bit of you know mm-hmm. uh, bra sort of you know whatever. He's the one with his top off. Donovan's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. the one with his top off. Yeah, <laughs> and so I gotta be honest as well. The saxophone music, like oh, the, a, yeah, the saxophone was alluded yeah. to sort of cheesy, sort of uh, dynasty, sort of Dallas, sort of elements. That conversation between Mike and Julia, I was gonna try on YouTube earlier to write it down. I'm so glad I didn't because I don't want that being to my retinas. It is perhaps the most, like you say, soap dramatic love scene. And that I was like, all oh, this is missing is sax- saxophones. Nope, there they are. <laughs> I was gonna say, I think that the you know the the jaw being unhinged and and the uh, like John getting his face ripped off, and not only that, when when Mark Singer's inside the uh, he's inside the crawl space, and that's where you get the first Grand Mall reveal of the entire crocodile head. You know, as he pretty yeah. much rips the dude's face off and he's flicking the tongue at him. Those were all really buzzy moments that everybody remembers, and I think that is one of the, those are some of the reasons why this thing still has this permanence in our heads but watching it this time some of the stuff that i remember didn't remember actually was the form that a miniseries took at the time now i was waiting for those big payoffs i was waiting for uh, richard hurd to get his face ripped off i was waiting for uh diana to eat the gerbil again but what i got and didn't expect was for instance at the beginning uh, of each movie was the uh, almost like a prelude or an overture where they go through the cast of characters. It's such an old school like 50s or 60s yeah. movie thing to do where you have this piece of music that is written. Uh, essentially, it's the score in an abstract and they go through all the different themes as they show you the cast of characters that are going to be in there. And I think it lends this. This is something you can do in 83 and 84, but I don't know if you could do it now just because we're so iconoclastic in filmmaking but there was a real classic type old hollywood mid-century treatment of this thing as if you're just gonna you're gonna get something the proceeding or what's going to follow this i should say is going to be a lot more grave and grand and old school scaled large than you are used to getting from tv and I i don't know i don't know if they borrowed that from another show but um, and, I mean, and even leading into the whole V the, the miniseries itself has a tremendous score. I think that's another thing that people oh, the score, yeah, that, that yeah. literally was going to be the next thing on my on my list. But before we forget, one one of the things I think makes V even more digestible is the fact that, and even the score has got an evolution, you know, across the series. It starts off, and I think the initial composer was Joe Harnell, and his 
you know, his introductory sort of tunes were quite sort of um, ominous and foreboding and then it becomes you know, when, when the visitors come down you've got that sort of it's like as if he was paying tribute to um, Mars from the planets by, by Gustav Holtz yeah, yeah, there, yeah, there are a few that. pieces that like that then you've got um, like one of the recurring themes in the first miniseries is is literally a, almost like a note for note homage to Bernard Herrmann's score from North by Northwest, something which I think Kenneth Johnson even acknowledges in um, the audio commentary for the you know for the actual series. And then going into the final battle, they actually had Barry DeVos on come on, who did the uh, the music from uh, Walter Hill's The Warriors. And then that sort of segues into um, Dennis McCarthy's music. Dennis McCarthy would later go on to be um, quite prominent in the Star Trek television series and is actually responsible for uh, put a gun to my head and ask me what my favourite um, film score is, aside from the obvious ones like Empire Strikes Back and, and you know ones like that. I would probably say Dennis McCarthy's score for Star Trek Generations. I, oh, wow. okay. yeah I, honestly it, it comes you can get um, an expanded version online and that score is just so beautiful i i, I can't think of a, of a more apt term for it and there's there's little motifs in in sort of um certainly in the final battle which are very much like um some of his best star trek work and i one of the things that, that, that has been most enjoyable prepping for this episode is the fact this caused me to seek out on spotify the entire soundtrack from the miniseries and and the final battle which i think i've listened to about three or four times now back to back it's it's just a, a really good score that holds up i liked uh, barry devorzen's uh, digital score the most it really sounded like um who is it brad fidel i think the terminator yeah. the original yes. terminator yeah. There's something stripped down, kind of like the like the 808s and or Casio type keyboard setup, where it sounds slim. It sounds like a lot of the um, lower budget kind of sci-fi movies that were coming out at the time. Now, I'm not even saying that is that's not a disadvantage. To me, that's an advantage because it has this new sound. Granted, there's always been a lot of Bob Moog synthesizers in a lot of uh, entertainment for a long time. I mean, hell, even Keith Emerson was doing Dario Argento movies around this time, things like that. Uh, and then, like, that sounds so... It sounds so futuristic. It's like, especially if you're thinking of a, log a, a logical movement from the beginning, the grandeur of the uh, opening s score of, of horns and strings, and then it gets to be in the dark ages and the sort of, you know, the, the, the dusk of the story is digital and bleak and uh, very harrowing sounding. I think it's completely appropriate. Like you said, it opens up into something much more grand to the end, too. It's a different composer with a different sensibility. But it almost, I, 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 whether it was intentional or whether it just shook out that way, it tends to make some kind of linear sense to me. Yeah, it does, and you know, I think the score sort of evolves given the fact that you've got at least three composers involved, and, and the story evolves, and then obviously by the end, I think Dennis McCarthy was actually brought on to give a more uplifting sort of musical finale to, to V, which you know I think he does, and I think it works. Yeah, but you know, again, you see, you've always got that evolution, haven't you? Go yeah. through it. Yeah, it's a change in tone, change in stanza, change in situations. This, it also, like Bill was saying, whether this was all ultimately planned out amazingly or whether it was just lightning in a bottle and everyone got lucky but it just works doesn't it yeah but you know going back to you know the scene i was saying with mike once again mike donovan's on the ship and then you've got the bit where martin takes him and shows him the actual you know, you've got water cooler moments in v you've got the you know the ships arising uh, arriving then you've got you know donovan on the on the mothership again pulling the you know the the visitor's face off and showing what they really are and then you've got you know way into the show we see the actual real reason why they've come to Earth. You know, they're not after complex chemicals which they need to sustain their ecosystem. You know, they're, they're after, as Martin tells Mike, the rarest and most valuable commodity you can imagine, water. 
and then you've got that incredible scene it, you know the, again this is another one that's just burned into my retinas of just seeing these like row after row just as high and low as you can see within this vast mothership of these human stasis pods and you've just got that classic delivery of that line where he says to donovan in addition to water there's another basic shortage on our planet and then it cuts the mic as the realize realization <laughs> settles in that that other resource is food and yeah. what, what a fucking cliffhanger to an episode i mean oh <laughs> and again, jesus I mean, we talk about independence day but you know essentially that's the matrix as well isn't absolutely it? You know, yeah the, the yeah. pods and the sort of fuel yeah. and energy and stuff like that you know and, and, and oh, again, it's, even, it's even the plot to killer clowns in matter space if you want to think about it too yeah it is <laughs> bill i was really hoping you wouldn't bring that up i would sleep tonight, though. <laughs> and then you know, even even as i was like in my notes i was typing down that exact line as martin speaks and then you've got a later scene where literally it's literally minutes after they're walking around the mothership you know mike is realizing why they're really here and and he's you know he's, he's talking to martin about their leader and he's saying you know how did someone like that get to be a leader anyway and then martin's response is charisma circumstances promises not enough of us spoke out to question him until it was too late does any of that sound familiar in <laughs> yeah, this, a little you know, bit a little bit you know it's, it, as well as being looking back to the past to world war ii it's actually still very sort of prescient now and and, and it, you know it works on a number of levels Mm-hmm. How about this? Speaking of working on a number of different levels, it only occurred to me at the end um, as as because the story is so pitched to the humans as it should be, and yet the actors playing the visitors and especially the command team of the visitors is so heightened, and it's like watching something out of a, a Vert Mueller movie. Uh, that you have Richard Hurd, who plays this really broad-nosed, uh, uh, Wilford Brimley-esque, Carl Malden type, a little isolated from the actual people who are doing the work on the ground. He just seems like a get-it-done-and-don't-tell-me-how-you-do-it kind of guy. And then Andrew Prine plays Stephen, who is quite literally the biggest jackbooted uh, uh, Heinrich Himmler type. He's like a Reinhard Heydrich on the ground, just the, the most amoral weasel you can think of. And then Diana is this extremely crafty scientist officer who is fighting being undermined and then in the middle of the series for no reason sarah douglas shows up as a military commander yeah, yeah on top of everything else but the way in which these characters all interact and i feel like they kept it on a good through line and it took me a couple of hours until i realized oh shit this almost looks like the boardroom of ocp these yeah, people are all yeah, wow. scheming against one another and there it's it's like is this capitalism is this like is this ken johnson's little micro screed inside the book about how shitty the people who run network tv are that they're all just a bunch of executives who are looking to hammer each other throw the guy out stab him in the back push him out the airlock and say oh now here's my great idea until there's someone looking behind you ready to take you out too the same thing i i thought that seemed to seemed to make itself manifest the more i watched this 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 sort of unscrupulous amorality almost like a capitalism uh, C-suite kind of mentality with all these people. Yeah, because you've definitely got the case of, you see the sort of back rooms, or boardrooms, sorry, I should say, sort of backstabbing. The Supreme Leader's mentioned, we never see the Supreme Leader, and it amazes me watching this time round, like you see with Richard Hurd, how little John is in it. Yeah. yeah. And I, yeah. I was sort of thinking, is he, like, you know, again, write my own sort of backstory to it, is he sort of like a figurehead? Because, like you say, the rest of them are almost Aryan, even though they're not classically the definition of Aryan. They're all sort of very sort of, uh, you know, chiseled chins and high cheekbones and jackboots, like you say. He's the one who looks like the sort of friendly sort of, you know... Dad, fa- he's yeah, a dad Yeah, dad, dad yeah, that's, that's the best way of saying it. 
he's the sort of figurehead, but like you say, he's, he's used very sparingly, isn't he? Yeah. Uh, whether he comes across like he is Ed Asner or, um, you know, just some sort of very soft featured guy who doesn't ever portray any sense of menace. The malice comes from everybody else. They don't put Diana on TV because she looks like uh, Elizabeth Taylor. You know, she looks like she's got some piercing eyes that could, like, fuck you up. I think Richard Hurd is the guy who looks like uh, Gerald Ford, you know, just sort of yeah. like a very round featured guy who, you know, you don't detect any kind of malice from. Yeah, yeah. definitely. They say he's almost, asked, like you say, the softly spoken sort of figurehead there like you say everyone else around them you would instantly be suspicious of steven you'd instantly be suspicious of diana but if we go back to martin martin's got a sort of if richard hood is the the the, the dad he's the uncle yeah he's the nice guy yeah. you know so yeah yeah there's, there's so much of this like you say we could look back now and we you know it might just be luck but there's so much of it just seems to be so much planning have gone into this i mean reading behind the scenes it was like three weeks it was the average literally place, the, some how the, lucky they got or whether it was yeah. just something they just had right straight away. When they were doing those matte paintings for the motherships, they had, I think, two and a half weeks prep. Yeah. Which is ludicrous. That's 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 no sort of lead time for any TV show. <laughs> Especially, you know, yeah. you know a, a big budget sort of event show like this. And going back to Diana as well, will we all get certain overtones about Diana? Yeah, she- oh, it's definitely her sexuality is played on in the, uh, the you know the scenes of Christine. And, you know, unfortunately, it looks as if they sort and of... And with Julie as well. She was... Quite, I thought oh, she yeah, was quite with, yeah. taken with Julie. <laughs> yeah, she, yeah, she's just, she's a big power player, and I think she's just the way Jane Badler played her. She's like a highly sexualized character. You know, it helps I think a lot the fact that she's just incredibly beautiful woman. Even now today, she's still, you know, I could show you videos. <laughs> yeah, you've, you've, you've unearthed, uh, you've unearthed the music video because yeah, she's. Um, I think she married an Australian guy. And I think she's pretty much spent the. From the 80s onwards, um, yeah, she's now got an Australian accent. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah you know, and and uh, I was going to say she the performance in a lot of ways is it, it conforms or hues to that cheese thing in, in in some ways for sure because that was state of the art for 1983. So there's a little bit of that Crystal or Joan Collins thing, the scheming nighttime soap opera drama ice queen who is really sort of harsh and the woman who has to do the things that she needs to survive in a man's world. At the same time, I think it's obviously it's really influential because, I mean, is this not Alice Creege's Borg Queen from Star Trek First Contact? Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm not not saying they're not rip off performances, but there's a lot of echoes that get started here in terms of I I can't think of too many other sci fi epics that gave the freedom to a female uh, performer to sort of sketch out what the top level of malice and evil is going to look like. And J- Jane Badler took all the opportunities she she could possibly get her hands on to create this role that almost defined a job in society. This, this, this thing is parked in a lot of movies and TV shows thereafter. I mean, the Cylons that show up in the Battlestar Galactica oh, series later on, things like that. Yeah, and you, you mentioned then that I think that's not something that never dawned on me. The fact that yeah, Alice Krieger's performance in First Contact, the way she sort of offers you know promises of of, of human anatomy to Data, and the fact that he's going to fulfill his lifelong dream of being human, and then she sort of slowly seduces him ultimately to get something that she wants from him, which is like you know the codes to the Enterprise, and you know Diana just works in the same way. It's it's infiltration, it's um, befriending someone, seducing them, and and it's it's, it's just manipulation and. You know, she's as much as you've got, you know, people like Stephen who are outright sneering villains. There's and, and you know, there's no doubt there's not a good bone in Diana's body, but you know, the but there's almost like a sort of personal touch. I mean, with the with the Robin thing, it's it's almost like she kind of wants to 
experiment and see what happens but you kind of get the impression she's get a little bit of a cheap thrill out of it oh as well. yeah yeah she's a complete it's play, sadist, it's, played on, yeah. it's played on so many levels isn't it she's a mangala you know there, there's just something about her where she she's a science officer she doesn't mind putting people's life at risk and, and and again, it's like she, not a bone in her body. Who knows if lizards even have bones? I don't know what's there. Not only there's not a single good bone in her body. On the other hand, though, at no point are you ever uh, at a loss for what her motivation is. At no point do you never not understand or believe why she's going. Uh, much the same way that Bruno Ganz was able to essay Hitler so well in Downfall. I mean, not they're not the same thing, but it's like, how do you take this horrible character and make it feel like we want to spend time with them? And it's like, Jesus, you know, Jimmy Gandolfini did that with Tony Soprano really well. Yeah. Jane Badler does that really well with uh, with Diana. I mean, it's one of the engines that kind of keeps this series running. It's one of the things we still talk about today is that performance. Brilliant analogy there with like Bruno Ganz and obviously the difficult job he had in Downfall is he had to do something. I don't envy any actor. He had to humanize Adolf Hitler. Yeah. But, you know, that incredibly difficult thing to do. Obviously, with Diana, it, it's a lot different because she's a fictional character. But at the same time, all of these visitors are, are drawing on, you know, real life, you know, Nazi officers who, you know, like you say about Mengele being the, the sick sort of experimenter, you know, sort of scientist type. You know, that's that's Diana. That's, that's, that's her all over. And, you know, she is basing her portrayal on someone who really did do these horrific things to the to the Jews in World War Two. Uh-huh. And when she she's the one who decides we're going to blow this whole fucking ship up. And even John is like, you're, you know, this is even sick for me because we can get out of here and like save some, yeah. some semblance of victory. She's like, no, it's like, we're going to zero sum this bitch. We're going to take this whole planet down. And she yeah. winds up shooting him through the back <laughs> to say, that's how rapacious she is. It's like, we have to just scorch the earth in this case, literally. And I mean, at no point do you ever say that's, she was hot to do that the whole time and it's like well they introduced those little key codes and the in the genesis device and she's definitely going to do it i have no doubt in my mind so you know with a view now to, to wrapping it up or we move on to our favorite three segments i think there's a few little things if you if you're fresh to v now you're going to be watching it with fresh eyes there's, there's a few things that's, that's definitely going to stick out and and areas where the show hasn't aged well where i think we're definitely being a little bit over forgiving things like you know the star child at the end with the, the whole prete nama and the, the the shiny sort of light surrounding her yeah uh, you've got as much as it was another one of those water cooler moments, especially with a big build-up when Robin does finally have the baby, and then the second one comes out. It it just looks like a <laughs> it looks like it looks like a rubber sock puppet. Ghoulies, yes, ghoulies, ghoulies. It does look like ghoulies, a little ghoulies toilet trolls. Toilet, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it, or, or, or Which is like another thing that's yeah. terrified me in my youth. <laughs> but boglins, did you have boglins over in the boglins. US? Boglins. Oh my god, yeah. yes. Oh, so it doesn't look good. It hasn't aged well. There's a few things that really do stick out like a sore thumb. When you got over the baby, one of my uh, weird, it's this bizarre flashback was TVAM, yeah. which was um, Bill. You guys have had 24-hour TV for years. It was a big thing in our youth that all of a sudden TV was on before 10 o'clock in the morning. Yeah. You know, and they started yeah. doing like I suppose your version of Good Morning America. Yeah, yeah. and I can remember the other um, a TV pundit. It was a guy called Jimmy Greaves, who was a legendary soccer player over here who'd become an alcoholic, and that was his road back. <laughs> yeah, that was his road back to redemption. <laughs> was that somehow he got the job as being the TV critic, and he was selling V as being this great series that people should watch. Then they showed the the baby part. Yeah, and when it cut back to the studio. All the presenters were cracking up laughing. <laughs> <laughs> and poor old Jimmy Greaves, who had this, who had this, this catchphrase of "It's a funny old game," because he used to use that when he was doing soccer punditry. 
Yeah, well, it's a funny old game, but if you stick with it, it's quite a good sci-fi action here. Yeah. <laughs> God bless Jimmy Greaves. So, guys, just, just to wrap up, V, does it hold up? Is it still relevant? I think it is. I think it's got layers uh, in a way a lot of its uh, uh, contemporaries probably didn't because, you know, you mentioned your Incredible Hulk, for instance. I don't think it really has that. But uh, this has... A lot of, again, the allegory may be broad, but I think especially today it winds up being something that in America looks very familiar, unfortunately. But on top of that, the acting, the performances, the effects, there's a gestalt to all of it where if you want, you can pick apart the 80s of anything. And I think a lot of douchebags will do that. They'll just focus on one thing and be a total shithead about it. However, I just think taken in whole, it's this incredibly successful thing that somehow survived a wholesale change in leadership at the very top of the creative project and yet sticks the landing in spite of that. So I, I think it does a number of things against the odds and winds up being very enjoyable in the end. Yeah, I'd have to completely agree with you there, Bill. And like we've alluded to all through this, I think the amount of influence this has had over not just sci-fi genres, but so many genres and you know TV movies, I think this is perhaps sometimes a forgotten sort of bastard child, really, where it doesn't really get enough credit for it, you know? Yeah, I think that's, that's, that sounds fair. Yeah, I you know I can't sum it better than that. And in fact, I think we'll, we'll put a pin in it for now because as much as I think we it's time to move on to our favourite three segment, I will withhold my final thoughts on V until then. Okay. All right. <laughs> wow. So this uh, this episode, we I think it's been a long time now since we've had the the, the, the favourite three segment, isn't it? We've had a lot of retrospective episodes, audio commentaries, and the like. So Silly when I turn up. <laughs> <laughs> so this week we are going to be talking about our favourite three, and it's quite topical, obviously, TV miniseries. I think what we'll do is, Bill, um, unless you're not, uh, if you're not familiar with uh, how we do it, we'll each take it in turn. We'll start at our number three uh, and just work our way around until we get down to number one. If you yep, know sure. my number three is the same as your number one, by all means, interject now and we'll just obviously um, you know talk about it one big go. But uh, Bill, if you want to go with your number three. Sure. Okay. This is a, a little bit of a recent hit. However, man, I really love the shit out of the People vs. OJ, American Crime Story, as uh, run by Ryan Murphy. This thing said a whole lot about America and OJ and the way people put TV together and the kind of rock block you can get on staff of a limited series. The kind of like top level, you know, gold standard of acting, direction, storytelling. Uh, I mean, it was a big success here. Everyone who watched it loved it. I don't think anybody really came out against it. And again, it, it it was commenting on today, but it was also commenting on, on 1994. Performances are great, and I think it's going to stick. I think people are going to remember the People versus OJ for a long time. Bill, that's my number two. So it's, ah, I, no, I thoroughly endorse that. And like you say, when was the last time you could see Cuba Gooding Jr. or John Travolta and give them praise? Yeah, that's an excellent point. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing. I, I watched it. I really enjoyed it. My only issue is one that you guys clearly might object to then is the fact that for me, I, I never saw Cuba Gooding Jr. as the juice. I thought that the pitch of his voice was, you know, he's, he's naturally got a higher pitch, whereas O.J. Simpson's got this deep boom in voice, and he's obviously fractionally, um, you know, he's, he's a lot of a smaller guy, and I just, there was always that thing of O.J. as a character, both, you know, on screen in the films I saw him, and, and then ultimately as, as a sort of, you know, when we were seeing him on the news during this, like, incredibly televised trial I just never saw Cuba Good Junior as him that's the only sort of fault I've got with it other than that I, I just thought it was a fantastic show Sarah Paulson was just amazing in it it, it you know even the you know the bit part players that showed up it, it was just a brilliant retelling 
Yeah. And like I say, the only gripe is a personal one. I, I just didn't like um, the, the fact that he, he just didn't he didn't capture for me what I see as as what the juice was in, in sort of a physical and the sense and the way he sounds. Sky, how about this? How about this? What you just think of him instead as Rod Tidwell, the late years from Jerry Maguire. I think the story will <laughs> yes. hold up. That's, oh, exa- wow. that's exactly okay. what I was going to say. That was, my, that, was my, that was my initial thing. Was this? This is how he got that gig. Mind blown. And then uh, no, literally the first episode. I was watching it, having the same preconceptions yeah. you were having. I was thinking, this is how he got that gig. He's basically just gone into the interview and gone, oh, the audition. So he goes, show me the money. They go, oh, we remember so you. Unfortunately, <laughs> yeah. as, as that went on, especially the sort of post-trial sort of scenes, he brought across a sadness and a sort of, almost sort of melancholy sort of, that I didn't know that he could do, to be honest. <laughs> I, I, I take it back and I, I can't now edit out my criticism of him because it will now then render my subsequent opening of my eyes to the the Jerry Maguire sort of link is uh, uh, is just not making much sense. So yeah, ignore what I said. <laughs> Great show, Neil. What's your number three? Uh, my number three again, fairly recent. Recommended to me by uh, Joe Rogan is uh, Wild Wild Country, which was uh, shown this year on uh, Netflix. Oh, I don't have that one. We yeah, are, I, I haven't seen it yet. Right. Okay. Right. This is literally a bit of uh, well, I saw the description of it of a bit of American forgotten history. It's something that I had absolutely no idea about. The guy's name, I'm going to try and do him justice, was Bagwan Shari Rajas, who later changed his name to Osho, thankfully, so I can refer to him as Osho all the way through it. And he was basically an Indian guru. You know, we all have the sort of like drink the Kool-Aid type situations, Jamestown type situations. This guy was basically building up a sort of commune in India and the Indian authorities said, this is dangerous, we don't need this in our country. He then decided to move to America and decided he was going to build his own sort of utopia in America. Um, I believe it, uh, it was in Oregon, there we are. Rather than building a commune in the desert, he decided to take over a town. And the way he took over the town was basically he sort of influenced local politicians, local police forces, started gaining more momentum, buying more and more property and eventually owned this small town. I think it's the early 80s, Bill. I don't know, like I said, I don't know if you're aware of this story, but... Only through this show, just because the show percolated through culture, but no, I mean, it's one of those things that happened, obviously. It's a gigantic country filled with a lot of curlicues. <laughs> but it's kind of the thing where a lot of times when you watch a sort of Jamestown-type situations where you sort of go, you know, well, clearly that guy was absolutely fucking crazy. It's the first documentary that I've ever watched on a cult, but I go, I kind of agree with it, you know? And it's more, I don't know, you know, we're only getting one side of the story. It's more his sort of generals, in particularly one general whose name, again, I'm not going to try and pronounce, she took on the name Sheila, so I'm going to use the name Sheila. How she sort of corrupted from the inside and almost ran a cult within a cult is something that I totally didn't think I was going to get into and I was absolutely absorbed by. They used the sort of mentalities of sort of church v state and sort of create themselves as a religion. They then decide they're going to try and win over politics and sort of politician sort of votes by shipping in homeless people from all over the country under the pretense of we're looking after the sort of disheveled and the you know, the needy. This is the American principle. But really all they're doing is, can you vote for us? They build their own police force, which they call a peace force. I'm not going to go too much into it because if you guys haven't seen it, I thoroughly recommend it. It's yeah. Really, a, it's an absorbing insight into, like I say, the, the, the daft part is with this, a lot of Osho, a lot of sort of gurus and leaders are sort of like, yeah, the, the spaceship's coming and we've all got to wear white trainers or whatever. This guy <laughs> this guy was sort of going, I like owning five Rolls Royces. In fact, I'd like to own 10, so I'm going to own 10. And you should want to own 10 as well. And he sort of sells that capitalism with spiritualism wrapped into it. 
and it's sort of every sort of dogma you could think of either politics or religion wrapped up in one this guy seemed to have an answer for it and he's either a really good con man who totally took me in or he did generally have some sort of sense of good about him i don't know i'd have to rewatch it but my first viewing of it absolutely took me in huh so that's on Netflix, yeah? That's on Netflix. Yeah, there you go. I think it came out early last year or the year, or late, late the year before, sure. Ooh. Yeah, I say I was, I was literally, I watched three episodes of Joe Rogan Experience and he kept banging on about it and I was like, I, it popped up on my things to watch and I was like, go oh, on, I'll give Joe Rogan a chance for once Joe Rogan paid off. <laughs> <laughs> so my number three is one that um, Bill has already briefly mentioned earlier. It's um, 1989, originally written as a screenplay by Larry McMurdry, who uh, Bill mentioned. It's Lonesome Dove. And what I didn't realize that, you know, I I thought Lonesome Dove was based on the book that McMurtry later wrote in the mid 80s, but he actually did the screenplay as early as 71. And the main roles were intended to go to John Wayne, Jimmy Stewart, and Henry Fonda with Peter Bogdanovich directing. If you imagine, you know, what a film that would have been. I, I, got, I, I have to interject because I, a week and a half ago, I actually saw Bogdanovich here in New York, and he was talking about this when he was wow. he was talking about Nickelodeon. I, I won't go into the, but he was mentioning how he's the same thing that you said. A lot of people thought it was one way, and it's like no, the miniseries was written first. The book came out of the fact they had the script, but he was talking yeah. about this dream team and the casting. And the thing is, Bogdanovich went through impressions of Duke. Duke Wayne and Jimmy Stewart, and he says, "Well, is Duke doing it? Uh, no. Well, then I'm not doing it either." And it's like it, it was set up, and it was, looked like it was a go, and then everyone pulled out of it one by one, and it was just left in the stick. So, yeah, that's an interesting story how it was made. Yeah, but I definitely think ultimately that's to the film's benefit because I think you know you've got John Wayne and Jimmy Stewart and Henry Fonda; they're all iconic actors, and especially Wayne. You know, he, he didn't have a massive range, not, certainly not like, you know, Henry Fonda when he's able to go from Once Upon a Time in the West, yeah, as um, just the epitome of evil character, which was completely him going against type, because he'd always been that sort of wholesome Gary Cooper type character. Whereas when, you know, the, you've got the eventual casting of the miniseries comes round, and you've got Tommy Lee Jones and Rob Duvall, I think ultimately they were a better fit for the characters. And, you know, it, it's the, it's a story about two former Texas Rangers, Gus McRae and Woodrow Cole, who decide to move cattle from the south to Montana. And it's the story about all the problems they run to on, on, on the way. And you just look at the cast, right? You've got Tommy Lee Jones, Robert Duvall, Danny Glover, Diane Lane, Robert Urich, Angelica Houston, Ricky Schroeder, Chris Cooper, even, like, Steve Buscemi turns up. You know, that's not even touching the sort of wealth of, like, brilliant character actors who are, like, pitted throughout. I think it was it was either the first or second Western I can vividly recall watching. I think the first being when my mum actually sat me down when I was about eight or nine and made me watch The Searchers, which is something I'm, I'll always be grateful to her for. But when Lonesome, Lonesome Dove came on, I was lucky enough to be able to watch it uh, when it first aired, and I just thought it was incredible. It was gritty. You know, I always remember it's got these really nasty scalping scenes, which always sort of stuck with me. But like those two main characters were just... Oh, they were so well written, so well fleshed out. It, it was a beautiful show. And, you know, you say about Red Dead Redemption being released today, and when I played, uh, sorry, Red Dead Redemption 2, and when I played Red Dead Redemption, I was thinking, oh, you know, it's like Lonesome Dove, the game. You know, you can go, you can, like, take the cattle across country, do all these little side quests, and it's just, it's got, a, it's just a really atmospheric retelling of the Wild West. Very cool. I have to I have to admit, I know all about this, but I haven't seen it just because of my, you know, when it came out, I wasn't a Western guy. And so this is just on a list of things to get back into. It's one of the ones that I've not gone back to, and I'm not sure how it's aged, but it, 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 I, I've seen it once, maybe twice, but it's still, you know, within a short space of time, like late 80s, early 90s. And it, it's just one of those shows that has stuck with me. Mm-hmm. Bill, what's your uh, number two? 
Well, sir, I'm glad you asked because, uh, look, as an American and as an Anglophile, I have to tip my cap to uh, some of the people who've done it the best, and those are the uh, the Englishmen. I have to uh, bring up Andrew Davies, who is one of my favorite creators on planet Earth. He's responsible for, this is not my favorite, 1995's Pride and Prejudice, which is this legendary, legendary piece of work that has endured, and that's where we met Jennifer Ely and uh, uh, Colin Firth. However, one of his follow-ups was a Dickens adaptation in 2007 of the brick-sized Bleak House, which is this really almost like unmakeable, uh, unmovie-makeable book. And the Bleak House miniseries is it, – it's fantastic. I mean I have – my wife is the real Dickens expert in the household – and she's the one who said we should watch this. This thing has a deep, deep, deep bench of character actors, as a lot of UK miniseries tend to. And it's like watching this miniseries and then watching so much of the TV that came out of the UK, especially on Netflix, things like Humans and and uh, Utopia. Uh, you see that there's this real character actor set uh, in in England that you know don't do American movies because they just do you know they're they're in the UK. And it's like okay, these guys have been working for years and they're incredible and they do great work. And it's like a rep of actors that show up in all these great projects. Projects. And Bleak House has Julian Anderson in it, has Carrie Mulligan, it has all these sort of early performances by people. And if you if if you can sit down, I know Neil, maybe this is going to make you push your face against the side of a cold toilet for a pleasant sensation. Do it. <laughs> I mean, it, it. No, I'm just saying it's a really good series, even though it is exactly the Jacobean, you know, roughs the high collar, whalebone corsets, comedies of manners and all that stuff. But it's really compelling. It's great. Andrew Davies, when he does these things, is a fucking master. At the form and it's just about again if you liked pride and prejudice the you know the the sort of groundbreaking 95 miniseries if you're familiar with that this is right in the wheel also uh wedge uh, wedge antilles hero of the rebellion is in this playing uh, an uncle john john dice so it's like it's got it's got something for everybody it's really cool i think over in britain bill i I don't think it'd be too presumptuous of me to say that there is a bit of an unspoken rule that if you are a heterosexual male of a certain age, there's a, a bit of a stigma to admitting that you like costume dramas. That, yes. that, that's all I'll say. Yeah, but you, you, guys, you guys tend to watch it and think, you know, this is really sort of like Angerfile culture. We watch it. Oh, not a fucking other one. Yeah. <laughs> it's literally we, every... We get drowned in it. And yeah. The BBC... You guys, you have PBS, and that's you know really noble what they do. We have the BBC, and we're forced to pay for it. That's right. We 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 yeah, we we have to pay we, a TV license, which is literally just paying for the BBC to watch any channel. Yeah. you can't watch you can't watch cable, you can't watch satellite, you can't watch anything unless you have got a TV license. There's people who've tried to argue, take BBC away from me then, and I'll just watch the subscription channels that I'm watching for. You can't even watch Netflix over here without a BBC TV license. Wow, wow. I, I knew this was going to be a tough sell, but I, I just believe I believe in the project so much. And uh, yeah, Is Charles Dance in it? Yes. Charlie Dan. Yeah, I think Charlie Dance he is in it. Well, I'm in. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'll do it. <laughs> and not, yeah, not, he, not for the obvious Game of Thrones reference, just for the Golden Child. I'll do it just for Charles Dance. Charles Dance is like the British Michael Ironside. You put him into anything, it becomes exponentially better. I'm a, oh, a it's like huge the, fan. It's like the British Charles Dance. Yeah, he's great. Yeah. <laughs> So, Neil... Uh, my number two, thankfully, I'm gonna, uh, my punch drug tomes are going to be a little bit silent on this one because we've already covered it with Bill because I was doing the OJ one. Oh, yeah, your number two is... Yeah, so... Oh, it, it's, are we on my number two? 
My number two is the one we've just been talking about for the last hour and a half. It's V and V the Final Battle. Um, uh, there's probably nothing more I can say other than I think when I started doing this list V actually came in at number one it was only when I was caused to do a little bit of research into my number two choice at the time that I actually thought you know I'm going to have to push that into the number one spot it's a little bit of a mix of favourite over best I actually think my number one choice is the best TV miniseries I've ever seen there could be an argument that V may well be the one that I've preferred simply because I've watched it probably five times uh, which for me to watch anything like that that long five times over again is just you know it, it shows that it's something that you know means a lot to me and you know I'd happily go and sit down and watch both series back to back again I, I just love it um, and as I said I think it's aged far better than I thought it would it's arguably more relevant than it's ever been and aside from a few cheesy notes and areas where the, you know, the sort of budget does sort of show that, that it frays around the edges, I think it's one of the greatest TV miniseries ever. Yeah, it stands up. I mean, hell, we just filled two hours of airtime talking about it, so it must merit it. Absolutely no argument there at all. Like, we, like we've already discussed, it's, um, I think the word seminal is quite often overused, but uh, you could apply that. So, Bill, I think we're on your number one. All right. Now, uh, let me just ask you, how much was The Wire a thing over there for you guys? Did you guys catch on to it? Right. The, the Wire is a big thing. It's incredibly highly regarded. Unfortunately, my own personal relationship with The Wire, I went into The Wire late. Mm. Just about the time I was starting watching season three, I got sidetracked with Game of Thrones and a few other things. I stopped watching it because, to be honest with you, I'm always singing its praises because I think it's probably the most, or without doubt, the most realistic sort of police procedural that you'll ever see, based on yeah. the fact that the guy that made it actually did go around with the Baltimore PD for a, a period of time and cribbed loads of real-life stories and actually you know, blatantly used characters, which I don't actually think he had final permission to use. My only criticism with it is you've got to put in a lot of work to get stuff back whereas with something like game of thrones it's like heroin it, it, you just you watch an episode you need Drifting. your next fist yeah. fixed straight away i didn't find that same sort of hook with the wire you know if i ever end up breaking on my leg and i'm sort of laid up you know in bed for a week i guarantee that it'll be top of my list of things to sort of watch from start to finish if i've got the time because so many people have told me that it is the greatest tv show they've ever seen confession time I, confession time going yes. back to our earlier conversation about we're spoiled for choice and I actually was in a period of time where I was laid up for several weeks and kept thinking, I'm going to do The Wire. Mm -hmm. I've yet to do The Wire. It's on my perpetual to-do list. Yeah, it, It's a I, lot of work, man. It's it a lot is. of homework. It's, pro I, it's, it's probably going to shoot me down with a lot of people who probably agreed with one thing I said tonight, and I'm going to just count it because I haven't seen The Wire. <laughs> the reason why I ask about The Wire, first of all, because The Wire was so endemically American. I mean, not only that, it's so endemically Maryland, Baltimore. Even if you're from the East Coast, even if you're from the same general corridor, there's a lot of stuff about the place culturally that I assume it gets right because I don't really know shit about Baltimore, the city, even though it's only about five, four or five hours away from here. However, you know, you mentioned the creator of the show, David Simon. David Simon did a miniseries in 2000 that wound up being, I think, just about my, it is my favorite miniseries. It's a proto-wire that very few people have seen. It was an HBO original, came, went, and it was called The Corner. And I think it's still on the HBO uh, app. It's out there in the ether if you, if you would see this. And it's it's a short, discrete, limited series. I think it's about five episodes or so. And it had a cast of mostly local actors, including some sharpshooters they brought from uh, out of town, like Candy Alexander plays the matriarch of the family and uh, T.K. Carter, who was Knowles. Knowles in the, the thing, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and this is it's like that. This is like I, I putting the line between him doing the thing and doing this was like, oh, that's nearly 18 years apart from one another. But this is the story. David, uh, David Simon was experimenting with uh, the way the American boomer neighborhood kind of like ebbed away and was eaten by the cancer of substance abuse. And The Corner was this first, I think he adapted a magazine or newspaper series he did for the Baltimore Sun. And he decided to turn it into a barely fictionalized uh, story. But really just holding on to the essential truthness of the story, truthness is not even a word, but he really is c- making a line between uh, baby boomers and the the tune-in, tune-in, tune-out, uh, drop-out generation, people who experimented with dope in the 60s because there was no consequences, man, and if it, did, if it feels good, do it. And it's like all of a sudden, by the time you get to the 1980s, that turns into this fucking nightmare where everyone is hooked on heroin and opiates. And so this is this it's it, it set in, I think, 1990 in Baltimore. And it, the cor- it's called The Corner because it really does take place on one corner. It's like a dystopian version of Sesame Street. But it's so effective. It's so humane. And it's it's. Uh, all the in 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 a abstract, it's all the large values that he would expose in the wire, just writ small, and very intimately with one family, showing you how you get to that Baltimore neighborhood in the wire. Yeah, I, I've never seen the corner, and you know, again, my, my opening gambit there with the wire, may, you know, may come across as negative, but it's actually thinking back now. My wife and I started watching it, and anytime we start watching a series, if she starts to get cold feet, then it means either that we both move on to something different, which I think we did with The Wire, which is a shame because I was really enjoying it. And then when you mentioned the corner, I'm looking at the cast list, and it's got Clark Peters, and I thought, oh yeah, yeah. you know, when I saw um, Three Billboards and Clark Peters turns up, I thought, oh god, it's Lester Freeman. And yeah, you know, if it, if it's anywhere near as good as The Wire, then I'm sure that you know it is another amazing show. Again, yeah, it's a pro. It's a proto wire, you know. Mm. You you had me at dystopian Sesame Street, to be honest. Yeah, <laughs> I've sold. Yeah, I'm very happy to sell that one to you. <laughs> Oscar, the guy in the garbage can selling. <laughs> <laughs> big big bird. <laughs> big bird would be a pimp. Yeah. <laughs> Don't even ask what Mister Snuffleupagus would be. <laughs> so that's your number one, the corner bell, yeah. Yes, sir, it is. Okay, Neil, what have um, you got in the uh, number one spot? Earlier on, we were talking about sort of TVM and Good Morning America and the, you know, the great little segues we've made there. We've already mentioned uh, BBC licence fees and budget cuts. And um, we earlier on, uh, Bill brought up Doctor Who. I'm a massive Doctor Who fan. And I will be honest, when the sort of reboot came in, I was very cynical and I was instantly drawn in by Russell T. Davis's um, sort of new take on Doctor Who. Then he brought out Torchwood. And I thought, this is the show I want to see. This is the show that's going to be on at nine o'clock at night. It's going to be for Adults Only, and it's going to be a harder edge to it. And I watched the first two episodes. And as much as I've praised American TV, I hate it when British TV tries to be American. Like any sort of cop show we have over here where a guy gets up and tucks a magnum into the back of his trousers and sort of slugs a glob of whiskey. <laughs> if you guys do it, I can accept it. If people over here do it, I sort of go, no, that wouldn't happen. <laughs> you know, I can sort of suspend disbelief. So the Torchwood, when Torchwood began, which is basically a spin-off, I don't know if you guys are aware of Torchwood over there. Yeah, but, not as not as big a success, but certainly, yeah, people knew John Barrowman. Yeah, he, he yeah. was a guy, yeah. Yeah, 
Tom Cruise wannabe. <laughs> Watching Torchwood, I, instantly I was like, this is this is trying to be a blend of like Warehouse 13 and the X-Files. And it was actually quite a big success. And then the BBC and then Infinite Wisdom said, right, okay, the, the paying public are paying for this and enjoying this. So what we'll do is we'll cut the budgets and instead of doing 13 episode runs, we'll do a five episode miniseries which is called Children of the Earth I watched it the first episode just out of almost necessity I think it was pre-Netflix <laughs> and it was like yeah go on I'll give this a go for me it's everything that a British sci-fi should be it's very sort of down and dirty very sort of kitchen sink sort of drama but also has this like fantastic sort of fantastical idea to it that aliens are coming down they're referred to as the 456 which is the frequency that they receive on the radio is 456 Basically, what they've done is they've come down, they've made a deal with the British government in 1965 to take X amount of children away. They then come back and they want 10% of the world's children. You have Peter Capaldi, who appears in Doctor Who before he's Doctor Who as a Roman emperor, who's very flawed and very part of the state. And again, with this, he plays the, the Home Secretary, who has to take 10% of the world's children and Britain's children to give over to this alien race. You later find out they're using them for a recreational drug, which, as we all know, is the plot to Dark Angel or I Come, I in, come peace. in Peace. We yes. have to mention that every podcast yeah, we yeah. do. So. <laughs> <laughs> but oh, yeah, all roads lead to Roadhouse, and those that don't lead to Dark Angel. Gladly to Dark Angel or I Come in Peace, depending on which region you were born in. The, the sort of storyline to it is so sort of fantastical, but it's so sort of realistic as well. The fact that they choose working class families to take the children from, the fact that you get the sort of military, and it's very sort of along the same sort of lines as V, where you get a sort of martial law sort of aspects it's not the best tv series but for me it was the greatest impact the mini series ever had on me because i literally started watching this with eh, you know i got nothing else to do i'll put this on i was absolutely hooked from the first episode and for me it's still one of the best tv events that you will see in british tv at least oh, what, what year was this I think it was uh, 2009, I think it was. Oh, nine, okay. I, I would imagine, I know Netflix over here do a lot of the Doctor Who. I would imagine it's probably Netflix uh, worldwide. I would imagine you could still get it. I know they do BBC America as well. I don't know if they do that as, a, as an app. I would imagine you could probably get it from somewhere that, like that. It's not the best TV miniseries you're going to see. It was just the impact it had on me and the fact that something that I went into very jaded and very sort of, I'm not going to enjoy this. Russell T. Davis is a tremendous writer and it just goes to show if you give people a chance a little bit of a budget because I say he's basically gone well you know I've got a third of the budget so I can do five episodes instead of 13 the special effects wise you know it's probably online with V I'm going to be completely honest with you but right. the story itself actually carries you through it um, I think asking me to comment on a Doctor Who show <laughs> would be like asking Mark Singer to do a speech at a necktie seminar I still think the Mark Singer could carry that off. Yeah, he, you know, he, I, I, I'm not going to say because it's going to sound like I'm shitting on Doctor Who, but I'm just, I, I've never been a fan, so I, I, I don't. I'll take your word for Neil. I, I, what I would say with you, uh, you could watch this without having any involvement with Doctor Who. Right. Okay. <laughs> I think we're on my number one. Right, yes, sir. Like yep. I say, I did toil over whether or not to put this in number two, but when it comes down to it, I think there's a strong argument that this is the. Not only the greatest TV miniseries, but I think you could argue, along with the likes of Roots, which have got like you know a, a, a very important core moral story, um, and it, it's an important sort of historical retelling 
albeit this one that is based so much on fact that it, it just, I think it's something that carries it through, and that's Band of Brothers from 2001. I knew, see, I have that yeah. honorable mention. I knew someone was going to bring it. Sure. As well. it's, it's 10 one-hour-long episodes um, written by Stephen Ambrose and many other writers. It was executive produced by Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg, and it's sort of, as Richie Roberts put it, a sort of spiritual follow-up to Saving Private Ryan in so much as it's made effectively by the same people. It tells the story of, of a regiment of... Um, American troops and, and their movement into Northern Europe and it's all based on actual real characters the real characters at the end of each episode the surviving actors show up and comment on the events you've just seen for the past 50 or so minutes which at first is like wow that, that, that that's that's you know really clever way to sort of bookend each episode but as you move on and the things that happen to them become more harrowing and then you start to see these actors uh, sorry these these real life veterans breaking down as they recounting these events that happened you know so many years ago i i've never seen such affecting moving television the actual show itself the production quality the scripting the acting the ensemble cast is just like nothing else i've ever seen i you know i went through the cast list on imdb and probably picked out just a third of what was there that i could have mentioned you've got damian lewis ron livingston donnie Wahlberg, neil mcdonough dale die who is um you know these he's the sort of go-to um, combat sort of advisor on so many classic war films. Michael Fassbender, David Schwimmer, Stephen Graham, Tom Hardy, Simon Pegg, Colin Hanks, Dominic Cooper, who was obviously um, Howard Stark in the Peggy Carter show, yeah. and uh, yeah, Captain America, the first Avenger. Yeah, yeah. And also yeah. plays Preacher. Jimmy Fallon actually shows up. James McAvoy, Tom Hanks actually shows up. Ross from Friends. Yeah, yeah, David Schwimmer. When he's not, yeah, steal, when he's not yeah. stealing cans, when he's of, not stealing cans of, of beer. <laughs> if you guys see <laughs> that over there. And, 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 I love that, I love that. And, yeah. and if you look at just those names I've mentioned here, most of those, with the exception of, of Damien Lewis and Ron Livingston and a few others, they aren't even the main players. Uh, you've got you know, actors which I've not seen show up in anything else, like Matthew Sattel as like the almost invincible, the sort of fearless killer machine, Ronald Spears. You know, if he was a real guy, then holy shit, he is as close to a, a John Matrix in real life as I've ever seen. <laughs> it, you know, it currently sits at number two on the IMDb list of best TV shows. It's only beaten out by Planet Earth 2, which you're like, yeah, okay, fair enough. Is there more important a TV show that you could be watching right now? It's just remarkable. I, I've watched the show twice through. Um, I've not seen it probably for about 10 years. Unfortunately, I didn't catch um, the sort of spiritual follow-up to Band of Brothers, the, the Pacific, but it's something which is on my to-watch list. It's incredible. Um, as much as I, I've got like a love for V, which probably is a, you know not beaten out by anything else, just for sheer admiration for what they did, Band of Brothers is just some of the greatest TV I think you'll ever see. Yeah, you know, I, I this is going to be an unpopular opinion, as we like to say over here in New York, but... Uh, Saving Private Ryan is far from a perfect movie. It has some sequences that are extreme virtuosity, but then a lot of it uh, really de devolves into this fairly conventional Hollywood schmaltz narrative, especially if you're involving Tom Hanks's wiggling hand and, and, uh, and some of these characters gazing into the stars, talking about sending letters back home. I think Band of Brothers did everything Private Ryan set out to do, except it did it much more efficiently with a lot less um, – it was a lot less maudlin, and it seemed like it was more a true telling with the same production values 
as Private Ryan had. You, know, you don't have the swing of a guy like Spielberg behind it, but it's pretty goddamn close. And I think that for all the things that I just don't get on board with Ryan about, it's almost like the D-Day invasion of Normandy for 10 episodes. Mm. And you almost couldn't expect anything better than that. Just, again, with a deep, deep ensemble cast of guys, especially, yeah, Ross from Friends. <laughs> yeah, I, Bill, I really do love Saving Private Ryan, but at the same time, upon my second and third viewing and beyond, I actually became like consciously aware of like, some of the things things you mentioned there you know i even had a, a an issue with the central premise of the film does it make sense to send an entire you know a group of guys back to get one guy i know there was a political agenda behind it but you know from the start i thought you know the, the whole concept of this film seems a little bit illogical that said i think the execution is amazing you know especially that opening sort of 20 minute you know attack on normandy but band of brothers took everything about saving private ryan that was great and just expanded upon that and i just think you know it's the great stuff from private ryan but with the, the sort of spielberg-esque sort of schmaltz removed yeah so that's it guys that's our uh, three favorite tv miniseries um we've we've got a few from uh, some of our friends and people off social media uh jacob rivera who's obviously a huge uh, uh, hugely important member of the wrong wheel crew uh, you can follow him on twitter at jrat 23 oh, m 23 he picked the beatles anthology band of brothers and the ken burns baseball series bill baseball not being very big over here what can you tell us about that is that something you've seen uh i'm not using baseballs oh, outside of my right. purview i'm somewhere else yeah we call it rounders over here yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, obviously tony stella uh, who's on twitter at studio stella who is just you know one of the most incredibly knowledgeable cinephile he just came back with one shaka zulu <laughs> yeah i knew that i saw that son of a bitch did that it's like yeah. he's trying to he's trying to get us all yeah demetria hamandashi on twitter again came back with one answer v which is yeah, yeah. Uh, matt r says who's another member of the wrong real crew he went for gun which i've never heard of Oh, I think that was uh, an ABC series. I think it was one season that was about a gun changing hands. If, if I have Matt correct on this one, it was the passage of a weapon. Each episode was that it was handed from like, it was almost an anthology of one family and one family, one family. It's like it, you see where this one weapon causes all this devastation. It was pretty experimental and only, you know, it was, I think one season, if I'm remembering correctly. Sorry, I've, I've called him Matt says That's his Twitter handle. It's actually Matthias van der Roost. Uh, and obviously Gun is his first one. Lonesome Dove, which obviously he was one of my picks and top of the lake which again sure. one i'm not familiar with and he does say that he's put those in alphabetical order leighton winston who uh writes for film 89 and is also part of the undead wookie podcast you can follow him on twitter at late winst he's picked the recent uh one on sky atlantic which was the night of did you catch that guys Re really yeah. good really yeah. good yeah really good that gave us riz ahmed you know that's where we got him yeah from. i mean he was in he was in four lions but yeah that was his american introduction for the most part i was gonna say that's what actually one of my honorable mentions so uh yeah. Then he's got Band of Brothers, and then in no specific order, he's, he's kind of cheated. He's picked two. He's picked Godless and The People versus O.J. Simpson. What a lot of Richie Roberts, <laughs> who is uh, obviously part of the Film 89 crew, number three. And Richie always likes to do a little bit of a little bit of detail in addition to what, he's, what his picks are. I, I like the way he does this. He, well, he likes to form graphs and flowcharts about why well, he's picked them. Yeah. <laughs> he's, right, number three, he's picked the original miniseries of Prime Suspect, which he describes as gritty, compelling, with a gripping story, top quality British drama from the 1990s that spawned six spin-off series. Now, 
that was my sort of proviso with this. Yeah. If, if you get six spin-off series, is that a mini-series? Now, I know we're saying the V in itself. It was planned initially as a mini-series. I think, you it, know, yeah. even, even amongst the, you know, the WhatsApp group that we've got. And yes, Bill, you know, WhatsApp is a thing over here. It's a thing over <laughs> I know there, you did sure, an episode yeah. on, you know, what I know you don't is. get it, Bill, but you we don't get it. it you know <laughs> you don't get it, How the hell do you Americans communicate with each other without WhatsApp? I was going to say 90, I would say 99% text messages now are just so, like, oh, 2010, God, yeah. aren't they? I, I think oh, the Americans, they misuse Facebook Messenger or something. <laughs> so, number two, he's picked one which Leighton Winston was trying to get me to watch recently. It was The Jinx, uh, The Life and Death of oh, Robert Oh, I have that as an honorable mention. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He says, if you thought Making a Murderer was gripping, you need to check this miniseries out, which predates Making a Murderer by a year. It's a HBO documentary, edge of the seat stuff, with a completely jaw-dropping close in two minutes. Uh, given the fact that that's the second recommendation I've had about the Jinx in over uh, or just over a week, I'm gonna have to give that one a go. I, I actually think. watched an episode of it about twelve months ago, thinking this is gonna be my next big thing, and for whatever reason, I didn't get around to it. That's not to say it was bad. It was literally one of those things where you know, like you say, yeah. I don't know, Dukes of Hazard came on or something. <laughs> and Richie's number one choice. Good lad. Band of Brothers. Just perfect. I'm sure others will pick this. A spiritual sequel slash sidequel to Saving Private Ryan. Realistic, emotional, it never lets up. I can't think of a better miniseries to oust this from the top spot. He, uh, should, he, should, he should write more for the site. Really, yes. Uh, Steve Amos, uh, also part of the Film 89 crew, obviously, and you would have found him on last uh, the last episode. He picked number three, Salem's Lot. Number two, Martin Scorsese's The Blues. Well, he wouldn't be you know, living yeah, up to his Welsh bluesman name if he didn't pick that. And number one, When the Levees Broke. Oh, now, interesting. Yeah, only, yeah. I, I saw this when I searched, I googled um, top ten miniseries just to see what qualified as a miniseries. And this one came up a few times. And then as honourable mentions, he mentioned Stephen King's The Stand and, of course, V. Our good friend, the uh, curmudgeonly Jim Cottle, or the late curmudgeonly Jim late. Cottle, has picked uh, the recent uh, Ultraviolet, which I still haven't seen. Ultraviolet, again, I almost toyed with Ultraviolet. I'm going to be really pedantic. Ultraviolet is not a mini series. It's two eight episodes. It's a, it's a series that got cancelled. It's like, ah, right. I'm not going to, you know, I could okay. pick, by the same record. Firefly. I, yeah, you could pick yeah. Firefly. I okay. could pick Police Squad. Right. Yeah, a mini series. Mm-hmm. No, it just got cancelled. Okay. His number two is one which I we really should have mentioned before now Shogun. Yeah, James Clavell's Shogun with okay. uh, Richard yeah, Chamberlain. Classic, sure. Yeah, Richard Chamberlain, who, and, and then uh, I think in chatting about this, he also came up with the fact that Richard Chamberlain was in the Thornbirds. He was hot shit back in there. Jim was about 14, 15 when these. Oh yeah, J- Jim's we, Jim's far older. We than were, us. He's he's older than time itself. I think actually Jim would have probably have watched this after <laughs> I, I finishing the shift right. in the factory. I actually think Jim is that old. He's, it, it wouldn't surprise me if one day Jim revealed himself to be the seventh Infinity Stone, the, the Chaos Stone. I think he would be. <laughs> If, if Jim shaved his beard off, you would actually see how old he is. Yeah. He's got that whole Santa Claus thing going on. And he has got a chin like Thanos under that beard, I would imagine. Uh, equally as scarred. Yeah. And purple. <laughs> and his number one choice. We uh, love Jim, by the way, Bill. Don't take yeah. it the wrong way. I, I, I think, I I think hear it. the fact that Jim is a veteran of World War II, his number one choice doesn't surprise me, is <laughs> Band of Brothers. <laughs> he, he said, that one how I remembered it. <laughs> Right, gents. Um, we could do honorable mentions. I think Bill's got a few honorable mentions. I make it very quick. My my honorable mentions were. I had the jinx in there because it was such a big deal. That was talk about the next morning. The guy would pretty much incriminate himself in murder. It's a big deal. But uh, Mike Nichols's uh, two part Angels in America adaptation for HBO blew my asshole open. It was pretty good. <laughs> um, 
That should really be on the poster. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Yeah, it was really good. Uh, I mean, again, I hadn't seen it on, on stage, but I think they did a really fantastic job, obviously, on cable. And look, I wouldn't be me if I didn't mention the original G.I. Joe Real American Hero miniseries, which changed my life. Five half-hour installments that showed, I believe, in 1984 on network TV after school I came home. And that's where it all begins for me. That's where my uh, that's where I start punching my pop culture weight is uh, the introduction of Cobra Commander, Duke, Destro, all those guys. That was a big deal for me. Can't fault you. The only one I was going to say that hasn't been covered there was uh, the original It, Stephen yeah. King's It. It was, okay. yeah. which yeah. I think was a TV movie that was split up as a miniseries over yes. here. It is a, no, it's a miniseries, yeah. yeah, because Steve's written a piece about it for the yeah. site. Okay, we're going to move on now. Uh, I think we're, we're a little bit pressed for time, so I'm going to I'm going to get rid of a few of the um, listener questions and hold them off to future episodes because they're actually quite relevant to some upcoming topics we've got. Um, so that leaves us with the one question I think uh, we've got time to, to fit in is from is from Facebook. Damien Heaton asks: With films like Gareth Evans' recent Apostle and Annihilation being Netflix exclusives, and ever more streaming services popping up. Are we seeing the slow death of the traditional way films are digested? And do you think this will significantly impact on cinema as we know it? Well, I think my my thing is that everything is becoming so balkanized. Everybody is getting a chance to pick the format in which you want to watch something. So, for instance, I know for a fact that David Lean intended um, Dr. Shivago to be watched on an iPhone 5 <laughs> while you're on a plane from LaGuardia Airport to Miami International Airport. So whether you want to see something as a film or a limited series or webisodes or however, I believe that the forms are going to exist. They're just going to become so balkanized that you might not even know anymore which is a limited series, which is a feature film, which is an ongoing, and which are just short bites. I mean, that's just me thinking ahead to 15 years from now. I think it'll always be there, but it'll just become, you know, a dealer's choice. Yeah, I I, I think this whole um, change in the landscape is going to have an effect on cinema. Hopefully, it'll result in maybe ticket prices or certainly concession prices coming down. Because, you know, a trip to the cinema these days, if you're taking your kids, you can end up spending £30, £40 before you know it. Ultimately, then, I, I think of times I've had in a cinema where, you know, you just can go back to earlier on this year where both Neil, Richie and I all watched Infinity War together. Holding hands. Holding hands, um, <laughs> semi-naked, and then and, a fight afterwards. Yeah, it was great. <laughs> and, and then you know, there was little moments, just like when you know the Red Skull turns up and Richie turns to me and says some of the words to the effect of "You fucking predicted that one years ago." And I was like, "Yeah." And you know, just when you see a great film with friends, and you know, or, or like when I took my you know a few weeks after that, I took my seven-year-old to see Infinity War, and as much as I was you know watching the film as well, I was actually watching his reaction. When you're in a cinema, all other uh, distractions are sort of taken away. You know, if I'm watching stuff at home and I'm losing interest, I can maybe pick up my iPad and I don't know, check the news or, or check the sport. You're in a cinema, and unless you're one of those dickheads who does like to get their phone out or tr- talk or, or do God knows what, you're there just to solely watch the film. And even if it's a bad film, that is your sole focus. And whilst there still exists an opportunity to see films like you know Lawrence of Arabia on the big screen in 70 millimeter I think there will always be a place for cinema you know cinema is how film was born and ultimately I don't think it's ever going to go away as much as these streaming services and stuff like you know Netflix are going to become increasingly popular especially when you know, Disney releases their platform and, and you know, it's also relevant to mention that earlier today Criterion announced that the film struck service as of uh, I think November 29th is going to cease which is you're, you're killing me Sky you're killing me it's a damn shame I, I think a lot of the time with the sort of Netflix movies and the sort of Amazon movies I think they're giving a chance to people to make movies a lot of the time because 
there's sort of Netflix has this strange sort of dynamic where they sort of fund movies and then they sort of buy movies that like if you look what happened with the latest Cloverfield paradox yeah. film where Paramount went this is like just a fucking disaster we can't release this and Netflix sort of saved, saved the day by saving it in and you know giving it a distribution yeah. I think a lot of the times when you're watching like Netflix movies they're not really attempted to be cinematic movies as such are they no I, if, I think if, what it's, what it's if, doing if, isn't if it like the one I did Wheelman <coughs> the review I did for Wheelman with Frank Grillo yeah I mean that's a straight to VHS back in the daytime yeah, film yeah it is and it works on a small screen because mm. it's you know 99% of that is yeah. him sat in the car driving it those type of films work. I think you're always going to have a place for your sort of big sort of cinematic films to be shown mm. in a cinema. And I think Hollywood has got this sort of years ago that like the sort of adverse thing they had towards television, and now that seems to be sort of lessening slightly. Like I say, you get a lot of big movie actors going to like TV shows. I think at the this is just a new version of it now, where they're sort of saying Netflix and Amazon are yeah. going to ruin everything. It's almost the type of thing where I think well, a little bit of competition is good. It makes you up your game. Yeah. And if you look at you know films that are coming out, we could go for the big hit as the Infinity Wars, but then you can also look at films like Three Billboards. Yeah. It goes to show how diverse cinema audiences are. A lot of the <coughs> stuff that's shown on Netflix, I always like. I say to me, it's the sort of VHS bargain basement stuff, just done to a higher scale, really. Yeah, I, I think what the issue is, it lies with the studios. Ever since Shaw, Dreyfus and Scheider settled on that boat to go after that big fucking shark, the blockbuster has always been king from the, the from the, the studio's point of view. They're always looking towards how can we create the blockbuster that's not going to make us, uh, you know, 100 million, that's now going to make us 600, 700 million, a billion, you know? Yeah. It's like when... When Marvel Studios were disappointed at the fact that Avengers Age of Ultron had only made $1.4 billion and classed it from their point of view, it was not so much a failure but a minor disappointment. You know, that, that's absurd, but that is the way of thinking of the studios now. So studios, they're all going for their big budget franchises. You know, Warner Brothers is still trying to kickstart their, their DC expanded universe. You know, the Harry Potter franchise has come to a close. You know, the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit ones are now, are now done. So they, they're looking towards their next big franchise. And I think, you know, a lot of other studios are. But I think what they haven't got a place for now, and, and something which is becoming a bit of a dying breed in the cinema, is the medium budget film. Yeah, I was going to say, because if you look at sort of like a parcel, which I would say I'm going to reserve judgment on because I haven't actually seen it yet, would that film have been made if it wasn't made by a streaming service? No, absolutely not. It wouldn't have been. No. Yeah, so they've yeah. kind of got this thing where they've got enough subscribers to take a chance, whereas a Hollywood movie movie studio is sort of looking at, like you say, we've got to make at least three times the budget plus advertising yeah. plus whatever. So they've got to take almost safe bets. And as we all know, sometimes formularic safe bets result in very mediocre Venom-like movies. It does. And I, you, you how, how about this? I hate to cut in, but... Uh, last night I got into a Writers Guild screening of Suspiria, right? Which I wanted to see for a long while. Obviously, I'm looking forward to that myself. I've got to be honest. It's mm -hmm. it's incredible, and the thing is, is like what happens? It comes on, and it's like it's Amazon. Amazon threw down on uh, Luca Guadagnino's vision, and it's like, okay, I guess you're going to see stuff like this, and, and not only that, but and then uh, what is it? Netflix is putting out the uh, Irishman, right? By Marty Scorsese's yeah. coming out. Yeah, and, and then uh, Annihilation again is another prime example of that. You know. Yeah, and on top of that, even you know Netflix backed up a dump truck full of cash to Peter Bogdanovich and Frank Marshall to go finish uh, the Orson Welles movie, The Other Side of the Wind. And it's like it's completely a schizophrenic bu uh, business model. You have no idea exactly what it is they're out for from one month to the next, but you do know you wind up seeing you know weird shit like Amazon. Also, they did uh, Manchester by the Sea. That was them. That was their first stab at Oscar gold from a couple of years ago. And those are all mid bud mid budget uh, movies as well. And so they have this very strong 
strange schizophrenia to what they're going to put their money down on. Yeah, you know, I just think that places like Netflix and Amazon are just going to be, you know, they're going to be a place where studios can more comfortably either offload like Paramount did with Annihilation or, you know, just create from scratch medium budget productions with the fact that because they don't have to market the film, they're not going to lose as much money. I was going to say, because they don't even really push a film. Because if you look at like Annihilation, Cloverfield, Apostle, they've all really sort of been self-publicized by social media. Yeah. You know, if I turn on Netflix right now, I pretty much could guarantee that Apostle's not going to come up as as a recommendation for me. You have to hunt it out. A few nights ago, I edited Leighton Winston's piece on Apostle for the site. And immediately after that, I went onto Netflix and I actually watched the film. The thing I found most strange was when I went onto Netflix and looked through, you know, the way the you know the the feed comes up. Apostle was nowhere to be seen. Making yeah, I hate a, that shit. Making a murderer season two was nowhere to be seen. I had to actually go into the searching and type it out, which I know sounds ridiculous. Christ, we used to have to, have to track miles to a VHS for a uh, shop. Now I have to use my fat, lazy thumbs. You know, <laughs> my, my, my basically yeah. one step away from being yeah. the fat guys on Wally, aren't we? Yeah, exactly. No, no. <laughs> um, my, my thumbs are tired because I'll be playing fucking Street Fighter on my PS4 all day. Oh, Jesus Christ. You know, come on, Netflix. But, you know, it just surprised me the fact that they're not exactly making the most of, of you know, the, the, if the interface doesn't work, that's always a little bit off-putting for me. If a film, you know, this come from the guy who did the raid and the raid two, is exclusive to Netflix, then for crying out loud, just sell it a little bit better. But do you think it's almost a case that, like I say, it's, it's part of like a, I always think it's like an ingenious sort of marketing campaign is the fact that you're going to search that film out. You know, if you look at certain films that, that have had sort of good buzz on Netflix, it's mm. because you know podcasts like this or. You know, someone sees it on a, a you know on, a, on an internet page, or someone recommends it on Facebook, and it's almost that thing of you're watching it, thinking I'm in on the secret. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, I, I think yes or no is the an- answer, but ultimately for me, no. Cinema is not going anywhere. Um, it's going to be here to stay. And what I would say as well, I think that you know, like I say, when you've got these streaming ser- services taking a chance. It could actually provide a springboard for people to go on to much bigger things and do bigger sort of larger productions as well. Yeah. So, guys, um, thank you for listening. Uh, you know, it's it's been a, an absolute pleasure preparing for this episode. V is something that you know we've wanted to talk about for a long time, and and getting Bill Scurry finally on. And it, Bill, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Yes, this is one of my favorite shows. I'm just so happy to be able to contribute. It's a real, it's glee. And Bill, you were you were definitely coming back, my You're friend. You're definitely coming back, Bill. Um, it's Thank basically you. it's going to be a two-hour episode where Neil adjudicates you and I sit down. Obviously, you're going to be on the other side of the pond, and we're going to have a contest to see which of us can name the most Transformer characters in two hours. <laughs> it's it's going to be a last man standing, um, and it's all, all the guest starts, all all the all the little sub, uh, you know. Mini cars, characters. yeah. Oh, I'm going to throw GoBots into it as well. Don't you worry, <laughs> Bill. Bill, I, I think I'll be honest. I think I'll be able to hold my own with a Generation One, but I think if you go beyond that, I, I'm going to fall down. Okay, I'll accept that challenge. Uh, I'm happy to happy to get in there. Bill, uh, where can people find you if they want to chat with you on social media or, or listen to your podcast? Everybody, look on Twitter at William Scurry. I'm there all the fucking time. You can't shut me up. My <laughs> podcast 
is uh, uh, I Don't Get It podcast. Our Twitter handle is at Noah and Bill Show. And those are probably the two quickest ways to find me and my work. And and as I mentioned before, I maybe I did mention before, I'm doing a video series, uh, 10-episode video essay series, he- heavily influenced by Kevin Mars stuff. I'm sure you're a little familiar with his stuff. Um, I'm going to wind up putting that on YouTube and Vimeo. So uh, I'll, I'll have some content coming, hopefully to value add to my uh, Twitter feed of inanities. But yeah, that's where I am. Great, Bill. Thank you very much for coming on. And, you know, like Neil says, you'll definitely be coming back on. Thank you very much for your support of the podcast and, and obviously the pieces you've contributed to Film 89. You know, I really look forward to more from you. Neil, where can people reach you if they want to have a chat on social media? If you don't like what I've said tonight, you can reach me at, at Bill Scurry. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> if you do like what I said, you can uh, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Neil Gas at Neil underscore Gaskin. There we are. Get it right one day. You'll never find me on Facebook. So don't and, bother. unless they're already following you. Unless they're already following me, which not a lot of people are. I'm on Instagram at Neil's Picks as well. There we are. Yes. And of course, you can speak to me via the site at film 89colon Jesus colon. <laughs> I can't say that without like Metal Mickey. Yeah. <laughs> Film 89, just put that in Google. Yeah, you'll find, yeah, you find us all uh, at film89.co.uk. You can email us, admin at film89.co.uk. You can follow us all on Twitter and Facebook, at film89uk. And you can follow me on Twitter and Facebook, at Sky Movies. Um, I'm not going to discuss our future episodes. Obviously, Bill spoke things on Facebook when he said we were doing V. I like the fact that Bill... <laughs> I like it, the, what can I just say, Bill? It, it did work you, in our favour. You sell a podcast better he than does, anyone else. does. The stuff gonna, you, yeah, I got a lot of media. I got a lot of stuff ready to go. We're going to have a good time because there's a lot of outreach for this. People are ready for it. There's a hunger in the world. The stuff you did with Jamie Lee Curtis alone, let alone Roadhouse, oh, before you did the bomb reel, yeah. I, they, they, they are really great, mate. i got to be honest. I really enjoyed them. Thank you them. so much. I appreciate that. Bill, one of the listener questions that I didn't mention was when you put that uh, message out we actually had one and he said are you guys really doing an episode on V please can I be a guest <laughs> and we said no Jane Badler <laughs> we told you before you're not going to you know Jane, Jane, yeah. Jane I can't believe we've done a whole episode without mentioning uh, Jane Badler's uh, concept album which I found on Google and was described as a mixture of sex solitude and love oh. We're going to wrap it up for now. As usual, stay safe, stay happy. And Prete Nama, which Prete- is a- alien for stay classy. <laughs> Prete Nama, Bill. <laughs>